and actually out loud, um, sort of apologizing to my ex-husband. You know, I didn't call him on the phone. It was just something I did energetically and just apologizing and being like, I am so profoundly sorry. I now deeply, deeply feel what it feels like to be on the other side of the addiction and like just to feel invisible and to feel powerless and to feel like you love this human and you can't do anything. And that was such a profound gift that I was able to get to be on both sides of it. Even if it was just for, you know, that little bit. That was Ziz Okulante, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast and today we have Z Zoculante joining us on the show and this episode is epic. It's a two-hour episode jam-packed with coaching, strategies, addiction, eating disorders, and Z's amazing journey of recovery. I promise you this is an episode you will not forget, and it is loaded with resources. So without further ado, let's just dive into Z's story. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Picture this. You're at work or your office or running your business, and you feel confident, fulfilled, successful. Now, imagine this. Going home after work and feeling safe, comfortable, and relaxed. And now, imagine being with your family and feeling happiness, joy, and love. Now, how does that sound to you? How does that make you feel? Now imagine that every single day, you feel confident, successful, fulfilled, safe, comfortable, relaxed, happiness, joy, and love. Can you picture it? Can you imagine what that would feel like? Of course you can. My name is Omar Pinto, and if you're listening to this right now and saying to yourself, that's the life I want for me, then go to www.sharespace.net right now and schedule a free consultation with me today. Sharespace, it's time to believe in yourself again. And for those of you that are looking for the perfect recovery gift to give to yourself or to a friend in recovery, then go to www.allrecoveryrings.com. At All Recovery Rings, you can have any recovery medallion beautifully transformed into a ring you can wear on your finger. All you need to do is select the medallion of your choice, submit your ring size, and All Recovery Rings will create the perfect ring for you. So go to www.allrecoveryrings.com and order your recovery ring today. And if you'd like to support the Share Podcast by making a donation, then go to the website www.thesharepodcast.com. Remember to spell share, S-H-A-I-R. Go to the top right corner of the website where it says donate or click on any of the yellow donate buttons throughout the website and make your donation today. And for those of you who love listening to the Share Podcast and want to enhance your recovery, then join us in our Share Facebook private group, the Share Recovery Network. In this free Facebook private group, you will meet thousands of people in recovery that are loving, caring, and being of service. If you're struggling in your recovery or you're struggling in life, then this might be the perfect place for you. 
The purpose of the Share Recovery Network is to discuss recovery in all of its facets and all of its pathways in a way that is attractive and all-inclusive. So to join us in this Facebook private group, go to Facebook, go to the search bar, type in S-H-A-I-R, Recovery Network, and our private Facebook group will pop right up. So join us today. And if you haven't done so already, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to show your support for the podcast. And speaking of kick-ass reviews, our next iTunes review comes from Polly 2001 Title is Great Recovery Podcast. These recovery podcasts are the real deal. Raw and honest, the guests offer a wide range of experiences for both alcoholics and addicts. Something for everyone in recovery. Treat yourself. Thank you, Polly 2001 That has always been my purpose for this podcast. Raw, honest, and guests that offer real experiences, real solutions, and an amazing journey of recovery. I love the way you close that. Treat yourself. So for those of you listening and you haven't left a review on iTunes, do yourself a favor and leave a five-star rating and review for the Share Podcast, and you will feel so good. Now, a quick message from Transitions Daily, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Hi, Z. Thanks for joining us. Hi, oh, Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was kind of nebulous earlier, but I'm doing great now. <laughs> All right, let's let's get let's dive into this. Um, I love the hair. So tell us a little bit about what the motivation was for for the purple hair because I've seen that. Is it, purple? is it purple or is it red? Is it? It looks purple here. Purple. It is purple, right? Purple. Yeah. There's been a, a lot bit of purple. So. What what is with the purple um, trend lately? I've seen it more and more. Um, I think color is more of a trend now. I feel like it's more creativity and self-expression that's coming back. But for me specifically, um, I, I act, but it's a little bit on the back burner right now. So for eons, I couldn't change my look. And now since I'm doing um, other things a little bit more, I can change my look. And so I decided to do purple specifically because it's the highest vibration. Um, it's the crown vibration, chakra vibration. So it reminds me of being close to God and protected and safe and held and I like purple. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I use I use purple actually for my for my website. So I love purple too. Mm, for know. for what reason? Um, I just like the color. It's a it's a very okay. dark okay. purple, and I saw it on Robin Sharma's site, and mm, so okay. I, you know, so I was like, that looks cool, man. And he's bald and I'm bald. Let's just go. Let's just use the purple. Let's use it. You know, and, and it's a, okay. and it's royalty, you know, purple is like. Yeah, know, it is royalty. Right, royalty. So, you know, and I'm trying to, you know, move in that direction of, of maybe not Being so much. Regal. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, I'm just, you know, there's this whole thing about stepping up, leveling up, right? And so I guess mm -hmm. my look and the colors, Right, I want to move in that direction. I certainly don't want to move in the direction of poverty, so um, that's not that's not something I'm interested in. So I'm interested in moving in the other direction. 
Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's, let's raise that vibration higher. Let's do that together here. Okay. So, so okay. okay. So, folks, today we have Z Zoccolante joining us on the Share Podcast. That's Italian. That's my best Italian accent. I could probably do better, but I have to watch a little more Goodfellas first. Forget about it. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Z is a good girl with a dirty little secret. And uh, she is from Hawaii. Uh, her work appears on various publications and uh, literary, literary magazines. And at age 15, began her eating disorder that lasted 11 and a half years, which we'll be diving into. Uh, and since her recovery, her work mm -hmm. is dedicated to helping others gain freedom from similar disorders and addictions. Does that sound about right, Z? Well, sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. Broad strokes here. Broad strokes because I want you to expand. All right. So perfect. Right. Uh, so before we start diving into the addiction, let's talk a little bit about what your okay. normal daily routine looks like today, including your personal pathway to recovery. Okay. My routine is mixed between internship and work. So on the days that I wake up early, I'm not an early riser, but I have to. So I wake up early. I have a latte machine. That's one of my favorite things. Um, I usually make peanut butter and jelly because I love it as my lunch. So I get ready, take my dog out, feed my dog, um, put my dog with my friend um, in her room, one of my roommates. And then I usually listen to music and podcasts and sort of take that time driving to my internship to decompress, to relax and spin on anything I want to process or to be grateful or to bring in, I guess, whatever I'm feeling that day. So sometimes I'll cry in my car. I listen to music and I cry about different things and release things. Sometimes I'll process things and be really grateful, just whatever comes up that morning usually. Um, and then when I'm at internship, I work at a drug and alcohol rehab right now and I love it. So I'm either with clients or leading groups or with the other um, couple interns that we have. And I find that a lot of the work that I do, I also utilize it for myself. So if I'm telling my clients about self-love or connection, a lot of times when I'm on the drive home, I'll either practice those exercises myself or connect to those myself. Um, I do use this app called Voxer to stay connected with my friends. And it's great because you don't have to be in the same time zones. And then I live in a community house right now with one of my very best friends and a group of other people. And so a lot of times we will do dinners together or my friends and I will watch um, Netflix or movies at night to relax. And then every single day I'm taking my dog to the little grassy knoll and throwing the ball with her for an hour just to get nature connection and time with my dog. And um, yeah, trying to bring in self-care, prayer, powers, you know, connecting to people and things and nature and God. And yeah, connection is important to me now. Okay. Self-care, prayer, connection. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so you, you live in a community house. I do. I do. I live in a community house. Um, we have a collection of young professionals living with us, including one of my very, very best friends I've known since I was 13 and traveled the world with. And it's wonderful. It's right. a little bit different. I was married before. And so I'm no longer married. And so that's what happens. Um, my friend, um, Divine Intervention, happened to move to LA about six months before everything fell apart. And so we decided to create a community house. And so I live in community right now, which is amazing. And I adore it and love it. Okay, that was going to be my next question. Because I was like, okay, community living. 
How's that working out with the boyfriend or the husband? So, okay, so you guys, the, yeah. uh, no longer. Okay, so that takes care of that. I'll be- No pro- longer. Okay, I'll be yeah. probing you about that later. Um, all right, so- okay, that's great. Okay, good, good. So then um, one of the big things too, for, for those of us that are in recovery, it's the- it's it's um, staying uh, vigilant about our program. So whatever got you clean, how it got you clean, how you got through your d- addiction for you was um, the food issue, right, or the eating issue. Mm-hmm. So yep. do you have yep. a formal routine or do you have some sort of a, um, a pathway, a pathway of recovery that you currently follow right now or is it just – what you're currently doing, which is individually self-care, prayer, and then connecting with your group of friends? For me, I journal a lot. Journaling is important to me. Um, If I ever find myself dipping low, having anything that's traumatic, I immediately seek out a therapist. Um, I have a lot of really conscious friends in a conscious community that I find they listen to me we're not really taught how to really deeply listen to people. So Mm -hmm. I do have people that I'm surrounded with that deeply listen to me. And it's so important for me. Um, I do talk to one of my best friends on the phone almost every day. And she listens to me and we have this back and forth flow of advice and love and support. And sometimes just being heard is really important. And then I do pray. And for me with the eating disorder, um, a lot of what I do to stay happy and healthy, really. Um, My recovery was such that I wanted there to be food to be a non-issue and my body to be a non-issue. And so it took a while to get there, but that is the recovery that I experienced. But the most important thing for me always is to allow myself to feel my emotions because a lot of all of eating disorders, it's never about the food. It's about what's happening underneath. I mean, it's similar to drug addiction. Any addiction we have is just the Band-Aid that we use to cover whatever uncomfortable thing is happening in our life or whatever pain is going on or disconnection. We use external things to fill this little emptiness in us that exists in all of us by, you know, by being human, pretty much. So connection is important and the journaling connecting to myself and then having safe people around me that hear me and know me and the ability to feel my feelings and know how to process them is most important for me now in staying happy and sane. (laughs) Where were you born? Um, I was born on Oahu, Hawaii. So my parents were little hippies. They did the migration from Massachusetts. Um, They were on their way to Europe and they ended up in Hawaii for six months, which turned into 40 years. (laughs) They still live there now. And my brother and I were both born and raised on Oahu in Honolulu, Hawaii. And it was great. Okay. And how, so you lived in Hawaii your whole life? Yeah. 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 I lived in Hawaii my whole life. I've done some traveling. I went to college um, in LA, literally five minutes from where I live right now (laughs) at Loyola Marymount University. And then um, I studied abroad in Germany. I've traveled to different places, but um, most of my living has been in the state of California. And I jumped back and forth from California to Hawaii for a number of years before um, I settled here for a while. And I'm in grad school, so I can't really leave because all my licensure is for the state of California and just makes it really difficult to go anywhere else right now. (laughs) But I go and visit my family back in Hawaii and I still love it. It's still my home. Okay. Uh, Because I... 
I was trying to figure out what accent that was because I was catching certain words that you say. And I was oh, like, what yeah. is that? What is that accent? It's Cause... a little bit of Boston, a little bit of Hawaii. Yeah. Ah, a little Boston. So you spent some time in a Boston. Boston yeah. Okay. <laughs> Wicked cool. Wicked cool. Wicked cool. <laughs> That's one of my all-time favorite accents is the Boston the accent. Cool? Yeah. Oh, well, no, yeah. just the Boston accent, you know? The Pakika, you know? Pakika and Havid Yad. I don't have that fully. I don't have that fully, but yeah. One of my favorite movies is Town with, uh, is it, is it, I, I don't know if that's the full name of it. It's Town with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Town. Okay. It's called the, the town. town. The town. And they were all the Southeast town. talking yeah. from you know from Boston. And I was like, I I watch oh, it. Yeah. I watch it over again just because I crack up. I just love just. It's one of my. I'm not a big Ben Affleck fan, especially now that he's Batman. Okay. But when he plays a, like this mean badass, it's one of my absolute favorites. Right? Like, and, and it was. Yeah. Have you yeah. you seen the movie? Right. Um, a long time ago. Okay, a long so you, time you ago. Have. I might have to watch it again. now. I'm going to have to watch it again. I'm going to write it on my list right now. Are they now. called townies? Right okay, good. Keep that down. Are they called townies? Probably townies. I don't know. That's a good question. I, think it's, I, think I don't know. Cool. Oh, he's a townie. I think Maybe. He knows. It's fantastic. Maybe. Okay, we're deviating. But yes, I, 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 love, I love accents, and I noticed one right there, so I had to dive in, figure out where it was from. Yeah. All right, yeah. so let's go back real quick, because one of the things that, that you said is very important, and it was about emotions. Okay, so yes, and and about addiction and how it is connected. Um, One -hmm. of the ways that that I work with people as a coach, right, is when they're hooked into that addiction, right. I, I, what I like to do is just kind of break it down like into little pieces, right. It's a habit, just like any other habit, and and at the end, there's a there is a reward system connected to an emotional state. So, for instance. Right when I'm eating something, there is an there is an emotional state that I'm attached to, which is why I gravitate back to that particular type of food. Uh, I would say mm-hmm. sugar is more of an addiction than anything else because it's it's such a strong hit on the dopamine um, receptors. Correct. But the comfort food is a whole is a is another different element, right? Like. When I think about food that's comforting, there's an emotional state. Like, for example, even I was recognizing this when I was drinking milk the other day, right? I'd found, I'd found a grass-fed farmer that had milk from dairy cows, like right off the cow. Yum. So I was like, give me, give me some of that, all right? G- <laughs> give me some milk. <laughs> right, right, because I've, I've kind of walked away from the dairy as much as possible, but it always lures me back in. And Why? Because okay. there's an emotional connection that I have to it. Like if I'm drinking cold milk, it reminds me of being a kid. It reminds me of going in the fridge, nobody's around, mm. right? And grabbing because I'm from the You're I'm from drinking milk as a child. Yeah, no, I was no, no, no. I'm not even forget t- teenager, right? I'd come, I'd come home, and there's a gallon of milk in the fridge. I want to know why milk wasn't available to you. Okay, to just, like have at your discretion. You know, You're like sneaking milk. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'd sneak it because I wouldn't pour in a glass. Oh, you drink it from the car. I'm one okay, of those okay. guys okay. that would walk in. Nobody's watching. 
you know, and then put it okay. back because I was too lazy to get a glass, didn't want to wash the glass, right? No, I okay. could drink as much milk as I wanted to, but it was the whole, like, I can drink it out of the... But I remember I was drinking, and because of all the work I do, I was drinking this ice-cold milk that I had mm-hmm. gotten from this farmer because I, I don't drink the milk that's here in Costa Rica. And I was like, God, there is something that's so mystical and magical about drinking milk. What is that? And so identify that it, it comes, it's from my childhood. It's a very special time, you know, yeah. being a teenager, being at home, not having responsibilities, just going to high school. Well, and, and there's always, my, my, my parents always prided themselves on having food in the house, right? So there was, ne- we never wanted for food. And we'd always shop at like a Costco's. So there was just barrels of stuff. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Big things of mayonnaise, big things of, you know, tons of cans of tuna, you know. So there's always there's always stuff. So I guess I guess there is that when we talk about that emotional state and that food, what you're connecting with is not the food. What you're connecting with is that emotional state, that emotional response that you get once it hits the system. It goes in and you ah, you go back in time. In many cases, you don't even realize what you're doing. You don't realize you're going back in time. It, 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 is this what you teach people, work with people with? Is this, is this, does this make sense? Yes. So it totally makes sense. First of all, what I hear you saying is that we always gravitate towards what's familiar Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of subconscious reasons we do the things that we do. And a lot of times in addiction, we don't connect to why we're doing certain Mm -hmm. things. I was telling somebody a story the other day about when I was going through therapy and my therapist had me write down before I would binge and purge, she would have me write down what was happening, which at first was impossible Mm -hmm. because there's no way when you're in it, in it, in it, that you're Mm going to take that second and do that. However, I started being able to do that. And I remember this, I never wrote it down, but I remember being aware that I should pause. And so I remember once I had this conversation with my mother and my mother's wonderful and I love her and my parents are wonderful and loving, but I remember having this conversation with her and I hung up the phone, put it on the counter, and I noticed I had the refrigerator open and was looking in the refrigerator. And I remember being like, oh my God, what just happened? As if like I was going to open the refrigerator and like right next to the eggs, there was going to be happiness. Like, oh my God, right there. I never knew it was there. You know, like this is exactly what I'm looking for in the refrigerator. Like, thank God. But it was this moment of connection Mm -hmm. of these subconscious things we do. And I talk about it like it's like a bowling alley. So, um, you know, the gutter ball in the bowling alley mm-hmm. and it's, you know, that divot. And so once we run this pathway in our neural pathways of our brain, that one pathway gets stronger and stronger. And so eventually every single emotion, happy, sad, anger, fear, anything eventually goes into that gutter ball. And the cool thing about the brain, however, is that there's neuroplasticity, meaning that we can actually restructure the brain so that when we start to um, have coping tools, coping skills, support, you know, sobriety, this, that, and the other, we start to create others' little rivers. And so we start to actually get away from this gutter ball lane and deviate into other little rivers and we create different neural pathways. And that is how we can keep our sobriety move and grow into different areas. A lot of what I work on with my clients is because of the personal work that I've done on myself. And one of the most helpful things for me has been that we always gravitate towards what's familiar, even if it's destructive. So 
everyone knows what your disorder takes away from you. Like nobody's nobody, you know, yes. like I totally think heroin would be a great idea. I want to screw up my whole family and yes. all my relationships. Correct. And, like nobody thinks that's great. But we still do it and we can't stop, even though addicts are very smart mm-hmm. and they actually feel deeply. They're, 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 they're known to be very, very intelligent and they actually feel things greater than the normal person, which mm-hmm. is why they seek substances to numb that out because it's too much stimuli. So what I do usually is I, I sit with my clients and myself, which is what I did, and it's what does your drug offer you? Because we are all trying to get a positive need met. And a lot of times we don't know how to get these needs met in a positive way. And so we end up meeting them in ways that at first they really work. You know, you smoke, you drink, you shoot up, you have sex, you, you eat food, you binge and purge. They work for a period of time, which is why we continue to do them. And then in the end, they don't work and we hate them and we are stuck in this pattern of being a slave to them. So if you can identify what your drug offers you, it's pretty profound because most of us feel like we're a horrible piece of shit. We can't stop doing these things. We want to stop doing them. And it's just this endless cycle of hating ourselves and guilt and shame. And then the guilt and shame brings us back into that cycle. So I remember for me, at least, um, my therapist had asked me, what does it offer me? And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? What does it offer me? Like, it doesn't offer me anything. <laughs> and then I was sort of angry when I was going through therapy. We're all and then pretty I remember pissed. I was walking down to my, totally, right? And I remember walking down to my job and standing on the sidewalk one day, because I had to walk like 15 minutes to my job and waiting for the light to turn and being like, oh my God. And the voice in my head was, it offers you a way to silence that voice that says you are worthless, you are worthless, you're worthless. And I remember just standing on the sidewalk being like, holy crap. And a lot of times for me, that's what was deep down underneath it is we all, no matter who we are, struggle with being worthy in this world. We feel like we have to prove things, do things, you know, worthy of love, worthy of whatever. And for some people, it's they seek it out for different reasons, for celebration, for um, intimacy, for, you know, connection. A lot of our substances, whatever they are and our addictions, they become these relationship partners that we have. And in my particular addiction, what was helpful for me was I actually created a separate entity for my eating disorder that I named Lily because Lie was in her name, L-I-L-L-I-E. And she had black hair, black eyes, purple lips, and was a seductress. So she was kind of like a witch and she was a sorceress because I come from a background of Christianity where there's dark and evil and all those things. And for me, um, when I was 15 and created this for myself, it was a way to separate from myself the good person that was still me somewhere in there from this horrible eating disordered person that tricked me all the time and made me do all these horrible things. Now, I know that it's still me. I know I was making these choices. But for me, that separation was so helpful because there is so much guilt and shame in these addictions that we do that it was so helpful for me to be able to separate that for myself and be like, this is the eating disorder. This is the bad part of me, but this is the part of me that is still good. And so if this is still there, I'm salvageable, even though it took me a long time to get there. So the second thing that I do usually is once I have people identify um, what their drug offers them is I take out uh, this nonviolent compassion needs list 
and it has like 90 needs that we need in all different categories. And I usually have them list the five or 10 that they either didn't get as a child or that they are trying to get by using their drug. Um, and I remember I had one client that listed 10 of them and the only one, and they were from his childhood and the only one that he had not given up on yet was respect. And he also had gang affiliation. And that makes sense because a lot of gang affiliation is respect. Yeah. And it was the only one that he could forcibly control. Whereas love, affection, all these other things that he wanted, he gave up getting because, you know, he didn't have a great family life. And so he just was like, those are not possible anymore, but respect is, and I will get respect. And so usually once people identify those, I work with the concept of choice and that the only person we can control is us. And we can only ask for people to meet our our needs. But at the end of the day, they can say, I'm not able to meet your need. And so even though we have sponsors and support systems set up in recovery for us, at the end of the day, we still need some resources to meet our own needs. So I start with having people meet their own needs in small little ways. So if you have a need for connection and you you have nobody else available to you, because there's sometimes where you might call people and nobody picks up the phone or nobody's available to you. And, or you might ask somebody to support you. And I, I use example a lot, like, you know, let's just say that I want some affection. And so I asked, you know, my friend Joe, if they'll like cuddle with me and Joe's like, I'm not available for that. So sometimes what we do is we say, screw you, Joe, I'm going to go <laughs> binge and purge because screw you. But I'm just it's like, it really hurts you. But you know, we have this thing in our brain that we're going to punish someone else by doing these things. Correct. And so if Joe can't meet my need, then, it, then instead of, you know, I could go to somebody else, which is an option, or I could be like, okay, self, how can I get this need met for myself? Might not be the same way that I want to get it met. Like having Joe cuddle me might be the best thing ever. Might be like level 10 comfort, but could I go get a massage? You know, could I ask one of my roommates to scalp massage? You know, could I go hug my dog? You know, is there some other, could I, you know, massage myself? You know, could I have, give myself some safe touch in some way? How do I meet this need for myself in small little ways? Because the more we learn how to meet our own needs, the world becomes a safer place. And you did one thing on Facebook a little while back about self-love and self-care that I thought was exquisite. And it was really profound because a lot of us are not taught how to take care of ourselves. We're taught that it's selfish, that we're self-absorbed, blah, blah, blah. And specifically, if you're an addict, there is a lot of us being self-absorbed. That's true. And so when we recover, there's that fine line between am I being selfish and am I taking care of myself? And what is, you know, how do I come to terms with actually taking time and energy for myself? Because so much of my addiction has been really self-absorbed and taken so much away from the people that love me. How do I get this part of me that's safe and healthy that I can self-love and give time and energy and attention to in a way that is healthy for me, that will then fill me up to be connected to those that love me and want to support me. My God, guys, you're going to have to (laughs) rewind this, you know, rewind. There's just, there's, 
if you're not catching it now, there's so much gold in there. It's it's amazing, right? Just we're, we're 25 minutes in and there's tons of gold in here. That was an entire coaching session for free, guys, just so you know, right? So pay close attention. <laughs> Speaking of which, I'd love that list, the nonviolent needs list. The, yeah, the nonviolent communication needs list. It's amazing. Um, nonviolent communication needs? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find it for you on my phone. Hold on. I have it on my phone and I actually, I turn my phone around and I give it to clients to look at, but I'm going to find exactly what it is. One of my friends took the class and she sent it to me um, on my phone, which is why I have it on my phone. But give me one second. I'll find it for you. I want to add that on um, the show it notes. Is the, it's called the NVC Compassion Needs List, which is the Nonviolent Communication Compassion Needs List. And for a lot of those, um, the nonviolent communication classes, I highly, highly advocate those. They have a wonderful book that you can buy that if you want me to show the cover, it's on my bookshelf over there. If you want me to grab it real grab quick. Grab it, grab it. Um, we'll put it on there. And then and then I'll also, it'll also be one of the books that I list. Okay. So, so um, this, yeah, this is great. It's the nonviolent communication book. I love it. And they also do classes in different um, areas of the world. Um, one of my friends has been taking the classes uh, with her partner for a really long time, and um, her partner is an addict. And there's been progress, you know, of course, but she's made the most progress because she's learned how to de-escalate the situation, how to be like, what it, What are you really needing? Like, you're saying all this bullshit mm-hmm. and all this stuff is happening, mm-hmm. but like, what are you actually needing right now? And if you can identify that, because... The reality is we're all needing something. And so if we are very clear about our needs, then we can actually ask for them. In one of my favorite things was uh, when I saw my therapist, who I love dearly. I used to sign her checks in the memo to fix my brain. (laughs) I think she liked me. I thought she was amusing. (laughs) Um, But one of my favorite things that she did is she drew this target on her little whiteboard. And she was just like, you know, you keep getting mad at your parents, at your family, at your husband, because they keep throwing darts at the target because they love you. And you keep being like, not there, not there. Stop throwing it there. Instead of actually saying, this is the bullseye. This is exactly where I want you to hit every single time. Please try to hit that. And when she told me that it was so mind blowing to me because that's exactly what I used. And that's what a lot of us do. I mean, even in relationships, you know, well, I don't want a guy that smokes or drinks or, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want all of these things. And the coaching thing is like, okay, so if you didn't have that, what would you want instead? Because once you start getting into the energy of what you want and what you desire, it's a different vibration because it's, I mean, everyone knows this. It's like, don't think of the pink elephant right behind you. You always think of the pink elephant right behind you. So Uh, Like instead of thinking about, wow, think about that, you know, panther sitting on your kitchen table. (laughs) Like it's, I mean, it's a silly example, but our brain, our brain does these things. Um, Yeah, but I'm picturing a panther on my kitchen table right now. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Works. And I mean, in acting, um, I have I have a background of acting. I'm an actress and well as well, and it's amazing how. You can create a character and create real memories for somebody that doesn't exist. 
I remember I was doing this play and I had a child in the play that had died and it took me a while to get there. But once I created this little boy, I would cry over not having this little boy because your brain doesn't know the difference. You know, I, I don't have children. I've never had kids. Um, but I would cry over this little boy getting hit by a car and he doesn't even exist, <laughs> but your brain is so incredibly powerful that the things that you're telling it and what you're putting into your brain, the affirmations, you know, any way that you're doing healthy self-care, it affects everything because everything's connected. That is, I love this, this, cause that is one of the <laughs> things that you mentioned early on was creating this witch avatar that was yeah. separate, yeah. which is separate from who you are. Like you actually yeah. were able to, to separate from your evil twin by creating yeah. an evil twin. Yeah. But, th but then embracing the fact that if there's an evil twin, then there's an evil, um, not an evil, it, 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 there, you've got the evil twin, which means there's a good twin. You've got the... Yeah, the okay. light and shadow side. Okay, so yeah. creating that allows you to separate yourself from the behavior. And it's, it's mm -hmm. more about this is bad behavior done by my bad evil twin versus I'm a bad person, I'm not worthy. Yes. So, yes. We, so you're and able to disconnect or, or separate. Yeah. That little level of disconnection is so important in recovery because if we only see ourselves as this horrible, terrible, effed mm -hmm. up human, mm -hmm. then recovery of any sort is really hard because it's hard to make that leap. Um, and that any level of disconnection that you can have from it, like Brene Brown talks about guilt and shame and guilt is I have done something bad. So my behavior is bad. Whereas shame is, I am bad. Mm -hmm. And where a lot of addiction lies in cycles, it's both guilt and shame. But a lot of it lies in shame. I am bad. I am broken. I am this horrible, terrible monster. There is something deeply, deeply wrong with me. And there's nothing wrong with us. We're not broken. We all have this part of us that is divine, that is beautiful, wonderful, that no matter what happens to us cannot be shattered. But in addiction... We, there was a lot of time period where I believed in many areas I was actually really broken. And it's really hard to take a step outside of that if that's what we really believe about ourselves. Instead of saying, we all have these parts of ourselves, you know, just like that part of us that wants to recover. And then there's also a part of us that doesn't want to recover. Are you kidding me? Yes. We did these things for a reason and there's parts of it that we really like. I mean... I loved eating a whole chocolate cake and a thing of ice cream and not having to pay for it by throwing it up. Did I really like that? Not really. You know, but I mean, like there was a lot of fantasy and a lot of like, I can do whatever I want, you know, mm -hmm. that I thought was great. I mean, I don't miss that today. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of sad. But there's parts that we romanticize about our addiction because it offered us something. Yeah. If and it didn't offer you something, you wouldn't do it. If, if there wasn't a reward attached to exactly. it, you know, there, there's yeah. obviously that. Yeah. So listen, first of all, I want to say I love all things Brene Brown. Um, her yeah, two, she's great. Her, just for those of you that are listening, um, uh, once you're done listening to the Share podcast and you haven't heard some of the most downloaded TEDx talks 
uh, TED Talks from Brene Brown, I would highly recommend going and seeing both of those. One of them is the power of vulnerability, or the power of vulnerability, yes. and the other one is I'm not. Yes. It is about shame, but what was the title of it? Do you remember the title? It references um, shame, though. I, yeah, guilt. The the difference between guilt and shame. I want to say that's what it is. The difference uh, between guilt and shame. Okay, so something Chris, like that. Krista, when you're listening to this, make sure you add the links to the what you add the to Brene Brown TED Talks. There's there's another one that I adore, not from Brene Brown, but can I share it? Yeah, um, bring it's it. one of my favorite ones ever. It's um, Dr. Gabor Mate, G A B O R, last name M A T E, and he has um, I think it's his most listened to one, and I think it's about the addiction of power and the power of addiction, and it is mind blowing. He's one of my favorite people on TED Talks ever. Um, he's a bit heavy. One of the, oh, I love him. Yeah. This, this, I, I, this TED Talk. Is, I can't say I love him. <laughs> I can't say I love him. I do like the. I, I did. I'm fascinated with this. Okay. Man. <laughs> well, he's just he's almost too fucking smart. Right. And, and, and when he, when he dove into the hungry ghost, I got that. I totally understood the insatiable, that insatiable, you know, inability to, to consume enough drugs to actually be, to be filling. Cause you're a hungry ghost, you know, you consume, Mm -hmm. you consume, consume, and it's never, it's never filling. Right. So it has that, it even has that weird little imagery, which is, which is cool. Um, but he, he does kind of dive into certain aspects of, of addiction, very psychological, you know, there's a lot of the, just what mm-hmm. the mindset and, and how it works. So yes, I have my, you know, he is, he is an incredible, incredibly brilliant man. So I, you know, I'm not going to take anything about him away from him. A little intense in, for in me. In that though. specific talk though, mm-hmm. what he talks about that I love, which I think is pretty simple is that we all have this sense of emptiness in us mm-hmm. and we all try to fill it with external things mm-hmm. instead of the light within us. And any sort, I mean, there's different addictions that are not necessarily, you know, the taboo ones, but like, you know, watching TV for five or six hours a night, there's reasons we do this to numb out, to check out to whatever, but it's all trying to fill this emptiness that we have. And if we can somehow get to be able to sit with the emptiness and have that be okay, then there's really, we get to choose, you know, what we allow into our life. Then we're not having this like vampire compulsion to do these things because we just need to check out and need to check out. It's like, Oh, do I want to watch TV for three hours? And sometimes, you know what? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I want to watch TV for three hours and not think about my life. I know. I and do. yeah. And it's, it's, but, but like, it's a conscious choice yeah. instead of this, like, you know, oh my God, I need to eat every single, single thing in the fridge and throw it up. I need to put this needle in my arm. I need to have compulsive sex with this person. You know, it's, it, it then becomes a choice that we're making and the energy goes down from it. It's not this frantic, anxious, compulsive, like, blah, yes, sort of yes. And again, that is a huge element in recovery, right? It's that creating yeah. that, yeah. creating that, um, that filter, Right. Allowing mm-hmm. or creating a filter enough to where you can at least ask one question before you dive right in or before the mania starts. And in many cases, you're 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 basically What's in a the man- question. What's the question you ask? The 
what's the question? No, I, it could be any number of questions. Why am I feeling this right okay. now? Okay. Why do I feel this compulsion okay. to use? Why do I want to harm myself? Like asking yourself those questions in that moment is very, very difficult, right? Especially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when yes. when you're where we're at and I'm sitting here going, you know, some chocolate cake would be nice right now because I'm a sugar, <laughs> I'm a sugar freak. Right. And so I'm like, why, why would you want it? Why, why, why are you doing that? You know, it's not, it's fucking 10 o'clock. You need some more sweetness in your life. Maybe, maybe. But yeah, the filter, (laughs) I I could use a little more sweetness, you know, the filter in and of itself is there now, but how do we create that filter when you're deep in the deep in the disease? Because there's really, in many cases, there's no thought. There is just like, I am anxious, I am uncomfortable, I don't like this. And you immediately go into seek and destroy. And that's, and, and, you know, it's like, how do I, huh? You like that, huh? Seek Seek and destroy. destroy. I like that, yeah. Yeah. You immediately go into seek and destroy. It's true. That's exactly what it feels like. And there's no stopping me. Right, 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 right. I think just in, in, I guess, um, breaking this into pieces, right? Or just creating that, or trying to create that space just in this conversation of like, here's what's happening to you. You're trying to seek an end result that has worked for many, many years that has that started out being an amazing feeling, your ability to disconnect from your discomfort that has now created mm-hmm. more discomfort. Mm-hmm. Exponential on, on even another level. Right. Um, so I kind of yeah. want to rewind real yeah. quick before we go forward because there's just there's just so much. Okay. So one of the things was there is it's it. I'm loving this interview, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Because it's I'm it's like great. we're just we're, there's actually I'm completely off my format and I'm and I'm loving every minute of it. Because <laughs> it is it's 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 a coaching the call. It, it is yeah. It's the hair, but it's a coaching yeah, call all in and of itself when wow. people are listening. How's that? <laughs> It's flow. It's flow. We're flow. Oh, we're flow. totally, we're, we're being like water right now. <laughs> Bruce we're Lee, water. Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee. All right. So I want to go back because I started numbering these things, right? So number one is okay. this idea of creating this avatar, right? And for those of you that don't know what an yeah. avatar is, is creating this character. So number one, uh, one of, one of, I, I, I just, I just love it because I've, I've always referred to myself in those days as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So there is yeah. this element of just this beast monster thing that I become. But the problem yeah. with that is that once I identify with you. that, it's still me. Yes. Like I yeah, haven't separated I haven't yeah. separated myself from the monster. So yeah. This is a beautiful exercise in these moments of reflection when you're not in that manic state, when you haven't, you know, this is, this is about a time when you're actually listening to this at a point where you can connect with the information, where you actually can absorb and intake this information, is that how do you mm-hmm. create, right? Just take the time to stop for a moment and go, okay, guess what I'm going to do today? I'm going to create my avatar. I'm going to create my Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll. There's mm-hmm. a Dr. Jekyll. There's a Mr. Hyde, right? What? How do you want to even create that? And I like the way you did it. You actually, and when we talk about, if you guys want to look up what an avatar is, you actually go into as much detail as you can. What he or she looks like, 
the color of their hair, the lipstick, their skin tone, right? What they're wearing. You can actually create this visual person, this character that is part of who you are, a part of who you always will be. They will always be in there somewhere, right? But they're not you in its entirety. So you can create this this person that you can go, wow, that is, you know, um, Mean Girl or, you know, what did you, what was the name of your avatar? Did you have a name for her? Yeah, mine was Lily, L-I-L-L-I-E. Because the word lie, lie. Was name. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay, I remember that now. So it's got a name. It's got an image. You can actually separate from that. Then number two is this whole idea of this nonviolent communication, which I want to get that list from you. I'll provide it on the show notes. Um, okay. On, on my website. Or is there a link to it somewhere that you can... There, it, sh- it should be online. I'm pretty sure it's online if you right. Google it. Um, if you yeah, can help me can with check. that, I want to I want to provide that to the listeners, because here's the thing I like about nonviolent communication, because it's it's the idea of communicating with other people in a nonviolent way. But we've been communicating to ourselves extremely violently, extremely negatively with with hate language yeah. that that we mm-hmm. beat ourselves up. Right. So number one, yeah, I create literally, I hate you. Yes. Something we say to ourselves. I hate you. That's so, horrible. You would never say that to a little kid. Correct. Correct. You just wouldn't. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of the way that I like to approach people in that aspect when it comes to coaching is if they have children, this is an easy one to really paint the picture, right? Would you talk yeah. to your three-year-old this way? Would you stick a cigarette yeah. in their mouth? Would you stick alcohol in their mouth? Would you talk to them this way? Would you treat them this way? Would you be out at two o'clock in the morning looking for drugs with your three-year-old? Like what if you, yeah. if you can find a way to love yourself and if you don't know how, let's talk about how you would do it with your child and the guilt and shame you mm-hmm. feel associated with not caring for them the way that you would like to because of this disease. So now you're able to yeah. create and separate this character and whenever you want to blame, get angry, get rageful, you can get angry at that, right? Just go, there's this part of me that I just hate, that I don't want to be a part of anymore, that I just want to I want to separate from, or at least find a way. Well, what, what would you typically do in this, in this scenario where it's like, if we're talking about nonviolent communication, I guess to some point you got to get nonviolent with even your negative avatar, right? Um, well, how would you, how would you so deal with d- that? So, or did I so deviate completely me, so far off the, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so we're talking about these parts of ourselves, yeah. right? You just said to yourself and I believe that in recovery and it's, it's a little bit more difficult. I found if you come from a religious background, because mm-hmm. things are usually black and white. Yep. And I have come to terms finally in my recovery that in the spiritual world, black and white does exist. But in the physical world, things are all shades of gray Mm. and black and white will kill me. So it's very important to know that we are not all one thing or the other. We are not all good, all bad. We are all different things of all these little parts of ourselves that make up a whole. And so these little avatars that we create, these like, you know, different personas are addiction. They're born out of a need for something to be met. Mm. And so they, they were not innately us. So with, so with my, with with Lily, 
you know, I, I had images of her, you know, she would be like rubbing my back when I was throwing up or like running her hands through my hair in the middle of the night, you know, and then she would, you know, be whispering in my ear at school, you need to run too fat, you're a piece of shit, you know, all of these horrible things that we say to ourselves. And so it's that like really terrible best friend that you would never say this stuff to other people. So for me, um, I worked on killing her. I know that's kind of a violent image, but I worked on killing her. I love it. Not necessarily absorbing her lovingly into the wholeness that was me. Um, there's definitely elements that, you know, of course I can always bring out because it's something that I created, but there's other people that, um, I had this one person at my facility that talked about his addiction as being lonely and sad in the corner. And this image of driving away from a house and having his neighbor, just his neighbor kid waving. And for some reason it felt to me like it was about 10 years old. And so for me, my guess is that sort of something happened around 10, yep. even though his addiction didn't develop, develop until later. And for him, it wasn't about killing this little boy that he saw in the background because he had a lot of sadness for it. For him, it was about reabsorbing those parts of himself that he lost when he was younger back into who he is in order to integrate himself as a whole recovered person. And so I think for different people, it's different based on how you feel about character that you've created in your disorder. For me, it was about separating myself from her because she was a seductress that lied to me all the time and would be my best friend one moment in order to get me to do something that was terrible that eventually if I listened to her, I would be dead. Yes. She was trying to kill me. Yes. So I don't want her, but for this other person, it might be absorbing all the hurt parts of himself that he feels were lonely and sad and disconnected at around age 10. Um, which totally makes sense, which totally makes sense. Yeah. It's all part of yeah. the, but you I know, the healing process of childhood wounds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a whole nother. We can go. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole. We're still on the same page. I but we're on the same page. Yeah. But but that little separation that it gives you to, to view this is me and not me at the same time, it gives you a little bit of that breath so that you don't have to feel like this terrible, horrible person all the time. There it is. That's what I was looking for right there. That's what I was yeah, looking for. It's That's, that little like... There's your filter. There's yeah. your filter. It's that breath. It's that breath. These moments of clarity. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Where that, I can, that I breath can, in between. I recognize that, it, that they've taken over. If I'm in a manic, yeah. anxious, overwhelmed you know, state where I'm out of control, I can mm -hmm. at least recognize that they have taken control. Whoever they are, whoever yeah. he or she is, yeah. have this taken part control. Of myself that is unhealthy. Yeah. And they've taken over and they're going they're going to they're, they want to kill me. And I have to take yeah. this breath and I have to breathe into this and just go, okay, what could I possibly do in this moment to break mm -hmm. free? To create at least yeah. enough, at least enough space between me and and my alter ego, between this negative avatar, and what can I do next? Can I make a phone call? Right? Can yeah. is there yes. is there is there a is there a comforting mechanism that is different that maybe is still not so healthy, but it's not going to take me down that that road that normally it takes me down yeah. to? Because everything is about creating comfort from discomfort. I know mm -hmm. that if I binge and purge, 
That's my thing. And I know exactly how that's going to play out. I know if I do some heroin right now, I know exactly how that's going to play out. But is there something that I can mm-hmm. substitute that at least in the, in the interim to between I can get to someone because that's really what I need. I need to connect. I, yeah. need, I need to connect because yeah. by myself, she will win. She will win yeah. if, I'm, if I'm by myself, right? Um, yeah. So we've got- it's, it's, even, it's even like going to therapy. I mean, I would have moments of being like, I need effing help. Mm-hmm. I'm sick. I'm not right. I need somebody to help me. And then I would call therapists, leave messages. They wouldn't call me back for a couple of days. And in those three days, I would have convinced myself that I didn't need help anymore. <laughs> so there were these moments of clarity. <laughs> I think we all have that similar experience. I you love know? it. Like, I'm not- yeah. Like, I mean, when I went into treatment, there were people throwing up blood. There was a girl on an IV backpack. Like I was just like, I'm good. I got this. Like I am not sick. I was totally sick. I was throwing up eight times a day and like hating myself, but compared to all these other people that had oh, all these other problems, like, wow. I don't need therapy. I don't need to be in here. You know, you always convince yourself you don't need help because there's other people worse than you, but you're suffering. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so in those moments of clarity, it's really important to become aware of them so that we can know this is the time that I am me. What do I need to do right now when I'm me before I dip under again into convincing myself that I'm not that bad. I don't need help. This addiction's great. And I'm such a genius. I thought of doing it this way, you know, and like screw everyone else and they don't understand me. And I feel so alone and blah, 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 blah. All the things that we all feel. Correct. So those little moments in between, that's the, that's the stretch and becoming aware of those and taking action in those moments of breath. So, so we've created a character to separate ourselves from the badness. We are not bad people. We are not unworthy. We're, we are not, um, yeah, it's, we're not we all born at it. Correct. Like we weren't born with this stuff. Correct. You know, we're born as these like precious little innocent little souls. Angels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're born as like these little innocent little humans. So then we separate ourselves from the behavior. And so we, mm-hmm. I, we create an avatar for that behavior, uh, a character, a persona. Then mm-hmm. we look at this nonviolent communication, right? We love ourselves, right? Uh, we create, I, I would say, create a second avatar, which is the good avatar, and connect with that one. Okay, we gotta get away from Lily. We gotta, okay, we've gotta, we've gotta call somebody. You know what the right thing is to do. We've gotta do this, we've gotta do XYZ, whatever's on your list of things. We gotta call Steve. We gotta call Jimmy. We gotta go walk outside in the fucking snow. You know, we gotta do something that's gonna change my state, right? It's gonna allow me to change my state from this. It's the momentum is building and I need to break that momentum. Yeah. Go outside, you know, make a call. Sometimes I'll tell even my, uh, uh, my coaching clients, I'm like, look, send me a private message if you're feeling like you want to use. I might not get yeah. back to you because it's 2 but o'clock in the morning my sharing. time. It's, it's 2 o'clock in the morning my time, and it's, you know, you're in wherever, UK, Australia, yeah. whatever. So I might not get a hold of you, but as soon as I see the message, I'll hit you up, right? Mm-hmm. And what I find is that when they do that, and then I get back to them. They're like, "Ooh, I made it." Yeah, I, yeah. I did, hey, you know what? I just felt better because just sending you the message. Yeah, you're naming it. That's what it is. 
you're saying I am suffering right now. And then just naming it and wow. telling somebody else More gold. is that thing. Okay, I'm going to um, repeat this. You're naming it. Okay, which is something yeah. that we don't realize what we're doing when we're sharing. When oh we're God, asking for help, you're, you're just naming power. it. Yeah. So specifically with eating disorders, and I'm sure other addictions as well, but specifically with eating disorders, there's this silencing of your voice. Um, a lot more so, I think, with anorexia, which is where you don't eat usually or you really wrecked what you eat. There's a silencing of your voice. And I remember that... Um, it was me, Lily and my therapist. <laughs> and I had pretty much no voice at the beginning. Lily had all the voice. Mm. She was talking to me constantly and I felt like a crazy person. And then I remember the day where my therapist's voice started talking to me when I wasn't in therapy. And I was like, oh my God, that's not my voice because those are not my thoughts. And those are not my little silent thoughts for me. And they're not Lily's thoughts. And I remember they would come in the stuff that my therapist would tell me in session. And so for a while, it was my therapist and Lily that would talk to each other until eventually my voice became strong enough that it was like a seesaw. And I began like, like if Lily would be like, you know, you're a fat piece of shit and you totally need to eat all that stuff and throw up. And like, is that true? And be like, well, yeah, I mean, look at you. Okay. So yeah, maybe I don't look like, and I talk to myself a lot back and forth, like in my car and stuff I do there. That's like, actually healthy. Hey, Susie, how are you feeling? Yeah. But, um, I realized that it was when my, like at first it was my therapist voice that had to be that other voice that was stronger. And then eventually my voice got strong enough to where, you know, when she would tell me things, I would just be like, that's not true. You lie to me constantly. You told me that last week and then look how I felt afterwards. I don't trust you. I don't believe you. I'm not going to do that. And yeah, I mean, really it's, it's kind of a power game, but the power is whoever stands peacefully in their truth. It's not about this violent, aggressive thing. It's whoever stands peacefully in their truth. And it's just like, no, I'm not going to do that. Man, and this is awesome. if we're strong enough to say that to the addiction eventually, and it takes time to get there, it's little incremental steps. Um, earlier, we were talking about changing your state and um, different uh emotions vibrate at different states. I think guilt and shame are the lowest. There are like 20 vibration. Peace is at like 600. And so a lot of what happens is people are like, I feel like a horrible piece of crap. I'm in guilt and shame. I want to feel peace. Peace is way too high. You're not going to get there from 20. But what you could do is what's one step higher. And sometimes one step higher is anger mm. because anger actually can motivate you to make change in a healthy way. Obviously, everything has its light and shadow side. But if you can just make a little bridge, somebody told me that this morning, if you can just make a little bridge at first, then that's all you need. And then eventually you work on making other little bridges to get higher. It's like you're talking step by step by step. So a lot of times, you know, and because if we think, you know, I am, you know, so I'm just going to use my example. You know, I throw up eight times a day. I constantly hate myself. I look at myself in the mirror and think I'm horrible and my ass is fat and X, Y, and Z. I totally want to love my body and eat any food I want and just be happy. That actually makes me feel worse <laughs> and makes me go back into my addiction because I feel none of those things. Like, do you know what I mean? Like everyone connects that's like, I'm just going to be happy today. Yeah. Well, frick, if I knew how to do that, I'd do it already. I love it. That's and true. So, 
what, what I, what, what is helpful is just one step above, you know, well, maybe I can um, find one part of my body that I love, you know, like maybe I love my clavicle or maybe I really appreciate the fact that my hips and legs allow me to take this run today and move my body and see nature. So it's like, what can I, what can I bring in small little ways instead of jumping like the Grand Canyon? Cause I'm never going to jump the Grand Canyon and it's just going to bring me back into my addiction. But what can I do in these small little ways? How can I change my vibration slightly to one higher and one higher and one higher? I love this. The, cause I've had, I've had this conversation too, as far as your vibrational energy. Um, mm-hmm. Is there also something online that has like guilt and shame would be 20 anger would be four. Um, there, you know? There's a book called letting go. Hold on, I'm going to get it right now. <laughs> I've heard of this too. Okay, emotional. What that's called? The levels um, of emotional vibration? This book, Letting Go. Letting Go, and then this is the author. That's one question we're not even going to have to answer. Hold on. Uh, letting Go, who's the author? List that up again. David R. Hawkins. David Hawkins, okay. Yeah, and he's great. He has a different books, but I have... that books. I mean... It's in other places, but that's the one I was reading most recently. I, for example, and that's one of the, I, I like the numbers, right? Because it's easier to explain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the things that I was I was telling one of my you know another you know one of my clients as well too. It's like, you know, I I was asking her you know about different emotions, like you know describe describe your mom, describe your dad, right? Give one word, give me one word answers to describe. And so at one point she had put sad right for her mother Mm -hmm. and so then i'll go down the list and i'll go give me from one to ten how you uh, associate with these on a scale from one to Mm ten you know and i remember like sad she's like 10 and like instantly Mm. right and i said Mm -hmm. i said and she was like wow i can't believe that was that came out fast right and i said i said look i said look that is if if I know that about you, then in our sessions, I'm going to try and piss you off. And she's like, well, why would you do that? I go, because that emotional state, that vibration that you're at, depression, sadness is, is a very low it's a very low vibration. And getting you to connect and getting you to listen to me in that state is going to be difficult. When you're pissed mm-hmm. off, when you're angry, right, it's also very reminiscent to passion. Anger and passion, yeah. right, are up in those vibrational uh, spaces where you get conviction. Like if somebody pisses you off because you're passionate about something, because you're trying to convey your point, your message, your feelings, okay, then you're willing to fight. You're willing to put up a fight. So I want to get you there. Yeah. When you're sad and when you're depressed, you don't you're give apathetic. a shit. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's like if, if there's a couple, if couples are fighting and bickering, that's a great sign. That means they still care, mm-hmm. right? If you like, well, what's he doing? Well, I don't even know. Let him do whatever he wants, right? They have contempt. Five right. horsemen or four horsemen, whatever. Contempt will kill any relationship. Apathy, contempt. And so raising your vibration. I love this. I love this. God, this whole yeah. interview has turned into a coaching session. It's fu- You guys are getting free gold here. So, And, and I love <laughs> the idea of stepping up the vibrational energy in increments, right? Like this whole idea yeah. of being, and I think that that's what people in recovery also have a tough time to is the cliches of happy, joyous, and free. 
not happy, joyous, and free. I am pissed yeah. off. I'm angry or I'm depressed yeah. or I'm, I'm hurt. Like any myriad of emotions and feelings, but happy, joyous, and free, I can't even connect with that. I don't even know where okay. this leprechaun conversation and dialogue comes from. <laughs> Does it exist? Right. You know, it's yeah. like, do I need to get a box of Lucky Charms? You know, like, what is it? What I, I'm not connecting with this. And so this yeah. whole idea yeah. of just taking it like, I can connect with being depressed, but I can also connect with being angry. Okay, I can mm-hmm. go there. Let's get pissed off. And it different states. Like, did you notice your body even shifted totally. when you did that? Totally. From depression to this. So when you're talking about walking around in the snow, mm-hmm. a lot of times just simply changing your physical body and location starts to switch up your energy and your feeling. And a lot of, I mean, I, I love therapy. I condone therapy 100%. Mm-hmm. And I also condone and think the bridge is the somatic therapy. So anything connected to the body, soma is the body. So anything that you're helping to work emotions out and through your body is the bridge that a lot of um, Western society doesn't talk about, but is really, really needed. Because Yoga. a lot of what we do in addiction is cut off our head to our body. And so we are so not our bodies and not present. And even for masculinity and showing up for the feminine, you know, like masculine men in order to be fully present, you know, in any situation, romantically, sexually, you can tell if a man is embodied in their body and masculine and showing up. And if we're cut off from that in any capacity, you know, we're just not going to be showing present which is what addiction does. You don't show up present. Like I'm having this conversation with you. And if I was in my addiction, I would be in the bathroom, in my kitchen, downstairs, down thinking about the grocery store. Like I'd be in seven <laughs> worlds at once, even though you That's would think so I true. was having this conversation with you. So true. Like I'd be in, I would be running all seven lanes of the track at once and you're not present. And so you're not able to really show up for the people in your life. And now I, I can And it feels so different actually connecting with people and connection was scary when I was in my addiction. And that's something like vulnerability and connecting in a real authentic way are terrifying when we're wrapped up in the addiction because we don't want people to really see us because if they did, they would leave or they would tell us the same horrible things that we're telling us about ourselves every day Absolutely, and being really vulnerable. Like we talked about naming it, that's vulnerable. You know, sometimes just saying, you know, like, I won't tolerate this or um, this is abuse or, you know, like this is unkind or I won't have this conversation with you anymore. I'm hanging up the phone. I love you. And I'm hanging up the phone. You know, like I'm leaving the room. A lot of these things were not taught that there are options on the menu. You know, I was taught when I was younger, um, my family was great. There was not abuse, but I was taught that you don't leave a conversation. You don't leave the dinner table. And I remember I had this um, separation years ago with, with my husband uh, for a while and we went to dinner and it was terrible. He just sat and ate his dinner. My dad stared daggers during, at the side of my head and my mom made really uncomfortable conversation. And I remember I texted one of my best friends after and she was like, in all capital letters almost, she was like, why didn't you leave? <laughs> and I remember thinking, I didn't know that I could do that. Like, <laughs> I can leave? That's an option? <laughs> And she was like, yes, you can always leave. Wow. I I didn't even know that was an option because I was told you stay and you just take the uncomfortability and you check out. 
and you just you just suck it up and suffer through it because you don't leave like you're not being abused in any way you know whatever you know you just you take it <laughs> and i remember realizing the moment when i realized for a lot of us we have a menu that we've been taught growing up that there's there's certain options on it that don't exist for us <laughs> that would be really helpful to have like really, like you can leave a conversation that feels emotionally abusive. You can leave it, <laughs> and that's totally okay and really good boundaries. Well, that's because we were given a different menu. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, we got to switch out we were the menu. Like the 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 Mick menu that whatever you know, it's like the <laughs> secret menu of things that we didn't get. <laughs> this is so good. I'd like boundaries. Um, A one, please. <laughs> 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 I'm going to take uh, an order of boundaries with a side of self-respect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like- and can, I, can I top that with some icing of compassion and self-love? I love That's it. great. Oh, man. This is, this, this yeah. is a book. That's a book. I am a writer. <laughs> that is a book. Oh, wow. Man, yeah. <laughs> this is fantastic. And also, and speaking of semantic therapy, right? Oh, somatic, somatic therapy. Somatic therapy, yeah. Yeah. That's when we're talking body about body well, yoga, body. Yeah. tai chi, yeah. massage, meditation, mindfulness, anything where you're yeah. connecting, right, with your body and allowing yes. healing. Of course, Western medicine is not going to promote that. It's free. <laughs> yeah. There's um, EFT, which is tapping that my yeah. one of my friends uh-huh. did for a year when she was really poor, and she she tapped. You mm-hmm. know, you can get that. It's it's like EFT.com or tapping.com or something, and you can actually do that for free. It's a free therapy that I always tell people, and it helps to blow out those neural pathways that are negative. Um, there's you know walking, you know even like touching parts of your body mm-hmm. if you have aversions to parts of your body and making parts of your body safe. Doing breath work, doing meditation. Um, there's a lot of things online. There's tons. Um, there's actually like therapists specialized too in somatic therapies. Like one of my friends did stuff on her abuse when she was younger, and her therapist gave her a little um, bat that wasn't a bat. It was like a styrofoam Nerf ball or something. And she would smash the couch and scream and cry. And so sometimes just releasing that stuff yes. from your body. Um, you can scream in your car. You can fill your bathtub up with water and scream in your bathtub. If you live by an ocean, scream underwater. You can hit your pillow. You can go for runs really fast. Um, you can use your voice. You know, like just screaming things loud in your car sometimes, are it's really helpful. Um, and there's also psychodrama. You can do acting stuff. There are, there's so many somatic therapies. There's, um, network spinal analysis, um, that helps to work on spine and decreasing your sympathetic response to things. So it helps you to be able to be less stressful in your life. There's, there's just a ton of amazing things. Beautiful. I love it. And some of them like EFT, the tapping, it's completely free and you can do it on your own. You know, yes. I mean, you can do yoga videos on YouTube. There's so many things that if you really want to do it, yep. you'll find it. YouTube has that's, everything. That's Every, if you Google, if you YouTube any, any of what Z just said, it will come up on YouTube. All of it. All of it. The tapping. Yeah, there's sure. there's an endless number of tapping videos in YouTube. All right. So here's what we're going to do yeah. because 
we've already done this was your free hour of coaching and so now what i want to yeah so no 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 this for our listeners not for you okay okay (laughs) our listeners are getting a free hour of coaching we just coach them Right, that's great. My <laughs> So what I want to do now is dive into your story. So now, you know, okay. he, here's the thing that that is most important about what we just discussed. Here is someone who has so much knowledge, so much experience, so much love, so much compassion for herself and for others. A, a completely different individual than who she was and we'll find out about how long ago that was. So that's where we want to delve into now. It's like, we know who you are now. Tell us who you were before and that whole transition. So this is where I say it's time for me to turn the show over to you, Z. It's time for you to share your story, your battle with, in this case, an eating disorder, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Z, please take it away. Okay. Um, I developed my eating disorder when I was 15. I was the good girl. So I was the one that was the perfectionist. I was the straight A student. I was the basketball player. I was the good, shiny person in my family. You know, my brother was a little bit more of like the got into trouble a little more. And I was, you know, the, the peacekeeper in my family, the good, shiny student. And so when I was 15, um, my dad started a diet because he had high blood pressure. I was really scared he was going to die. And so I started testing the diets on myself. At the same time, I was a junior lifeguard. So I was swimming every day. I was in the sun, happy. I was in the water. Um, I was being around kids and other people. And somebody bet me that I could, that we, we made a bet we could stop eating sweets for a month. And they stopped about, you know, two and a half weeks through. And because I was like, I'm going to do this and prove him wrong and ha ha ha. I went for a month and then longer because I started seeing all these changes in my body and liking it. Um, I was a loner in high school. So then I transitioned into high school. I had seven shades of bright blonde hair and was like super tan and, you know, just felt like the bomb going into high school but I was a loner and I was really shy. So, um, I didn't really have a social group and I would spend most of my time in the locker room, uh, reading or writing or in the back of the library all by myself. I was very socially awkward before. Um, I would say weird things around people because I was just, I was uncomfortable making conversation. And a lot of that stemmed from the fact that in my family household, a lot of people would talk for me specifically my mom, if, if we went out together, my mom would answer questions for me a lot. And so I didn't really feel like I had a voice. And they had the parenting philosophy of whenever any emotion was expressed that was a negative emotion, they would try to tell me that it was not so. So I'd be like, I'm really sad. And my dad would be like, why are you sad? You're great. You're wonderful. Here's mm-hmm. all these great things about you. So how totally. conflict was dealt with in my house. I'm going to back up for a second because I think this is important. Very. Conflict was dealt with in my house where emotions were not expressed and they weren't they weren't allowed to be able to be felt. And or if I did, I felt like my parents took them over as their no problem. Totally. What that did to me was it made me feel like I didn't want to share anything with them because I didn't want to worry them, make them afraid or have them take over some part of my journey. Um, conflict was also dealt with where it was just swept under the rug. So we would have an argument or a fight 
you know, very Italian like, <laughs> and then five seconds later, you know, just, just be like, okay, what do you want to go to eat for lunch? And it would just be like, okay, well, I guess that's over and we're all going to be friends now. So it was never actually dealt with in a way that was like, this was my need. This is how I felt. This is how you felt. This is what didn't happen. What can we do to rectify it next time? And so when you grow up like that, you become very sensitive to knowing how people emotionally respond and just not doing these things. So I became very chameleon-like. Um, in high school, people used to say that I would wear costumes to school because one day I would be like head to toe, bell bottoms, beads, this, that, and the other. One day I would be the girl from, I would be Alicia Silverstone from Clueless. So I was just creating these different personalities for myself because I wanted to feel how those people felt in the world. Meanwhile, I was completely alone, completely isolated. And I remember I did share once with my parents. I remember I couldn't take it anymore and I was really sad and lonely. I sat down on my parents' couch and I started crying. Well, my couch <laughs> in our house. And my parents were like, oh my God, what's wrong? Blah, 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 blah. And I told them that I ate alone every day in the locker room. And I remember my parents were so worried. And just something that they said or the look on their face, I remember thinking, stupid, stupid, stupid. Why did you tell them? And from that point on, I never told them anything else about how sad or lonely I was because I didn't want to worry them. They were really afraid. And at this point, I was also sinking into um, my anorexia. So I'm going to back up to when I went to high school. That summer was the summer that it started. Didn't realize I had a problem though, until I went to high school. My high school was college mod scheduled. So you were set up in increments of hours, meaning that if you had two hours of class that day, you might have five hours of no class. So it was set up like a college schedule. And so I didn't have a group of friends. And so I just hung out with myself all the time. When lunch rolled around, I was used to swimming and doing laps because that's what we used to do for junior lifeguards. And so I felt this anxiety now about like, I need to exercise. And so I started running behind the, in the hills, in the valleys back behind my school. And I was also a basketball player. So I started way over exercising. I would probably exercise for like five hours a day in total. And I started limiting what I ate because um, it was, I think it was a control and a power thing. This is the one thing that I could control that made me feel special and unique and wonderful and like that. And then after about a year of doing that, and I've always been thin. This is kind of the messed up thing is I've always been really thin. And so I did get to a point where I always ate three meals a day, but I was over-exercising a lot. So I did lose weight and I was very thin and people were very concerned about me. And of course, I was just like, mind your own effing business. Never said that though, because I was a good girl. But that's what I was thinking internally. I just wanted everyone, and I'm going to swear, this is really what I wanted. I wanted everyone to leave me the fuck alone. That's what I really wanted. You know, you can say time. you can say fuck whenever you want. You know, what I mean, okay. I, I didn't okay. I didn't stipulate this in the beginning, but <laughs> I, know. I was my, listening. My family members are always like, "Can you get your point across without swearing?" And I'm like, "But sometimes fuck is the most appropriate word." Yes. <laughs> so I, yeah, so I always allow my clients to swear in groups and whatnot. Fuck yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. Then after about a year of really restricting um, my diet and over-exercising, and I mean, I remember there was the ab roller at that time. Oh my God, I remember <laughs> And that. I remember staying up late at night in my living room in the dark ro- doing the ab roller because I was going to work off what I ate for dinner. Like I was literally that psycho to where I knew everything that was going into my body um, 
and it was, and I didn't eat any desserts and I missed eating desserts because we talked comfort foods and desserts were comfort foods mm -hmm. for me. I used to bake cookies with my mom growing up and it was, it was fun. I loved them. And so after about a year, I remember my mom had baked a pan of date bars or something. And I remember I ate an entire row of them and lost my mind. And I think that's when I abrolled for like an hour that night. And then I realized that I had to develop something else. And so what I started doing is I had the brilliant idea that I would just start throwing up dessert. So I started throwing up just dessert because I was very healthy and I still believe in nourishing my body. Um, I didn't want to throw up everything. I just wanted to throw up the bad stuff, the dessert stuff. And so I started off throwing up that. I was stupid enough to throw up outside so my father eventually found like there was some stuff in the plant and called me and it was this really humiliating conversation where I just basically stared through him to the wall and lied to his face. And um, from then I, um, I started throwing up and um, sometimes I don't like to share details because it can be triggering for people, but I can turn my stomach. I used to be able to turn my stomach to where I don't have to put my finger down my throat. I met one other girl that could do that. And so all the time that I threw up, like sometimes when people throw up, they'll get these blister, uh, not blisters, but calluses. They're called Raynard something from, you know, putting items or their, their fingers down their throat. Um, I never did that because I can just twist my stomach. And so it would be quiet. And so my parents even said that they would stand outside the bathroom think like, and then they would convince themselves like, no, she's fine because we can't hear anything. So once I got sucked into being able to throw up, it started off just with the, with desserts, but as we know, it doesn't ever end there. So it started off with, yeah, it started off with me waiting for everybody to leave my house in high school so I could raid the fridge and binge and purge for an hour and a half before everybody got home. Um, and it was just this terrible, terrible cycle. Um, I ended up meeting this wonderful man that I turned out to marry for a number of years and didn't really tell him the extent of my disorder because you know what? When you're dating somebody, you are sort of like cocaine on your brain when you're in love. It's literally your brain is on cocaine and there's limerence for two years. This period where you think that everything is magical and wonderful. And two he was years? a wonderful man. Yeah, two years. It's it, it's about two years. It's called limerence. Yeah, where your brain is like on cocaine. Okay. Yeah. So the real relationship doesn't start until after two years. Wow. <laughs> Hopefully you're building stuff in the meantime. But More yeah, gyms. It's, it's when the chemicals are off. <laughs> so you, you'll notice a lot of couples will break up after two years because it's that limerence thing has worn uh, off approximately. Yeah. Hey, quick so, question. How, anyways, old, how, old, was, were, how yes. old were you when you got married? Um, I was 24 when I got married, but I met my husband when I was 21. Okay. Um, my ex-husband. And so when I met him, I was so into him. I was so happy, so happy. We laughed so much. And I didn't, I thought that my eating disorder had gone away. Mm, Little did I know right. it went into hiding, but because I thought it went away, I was like, Hey, I have this thing. I was like, kind of alluded to the fact that I had some eating disorder pro or eating problems in the past. Totally not true. And then after a while of being with him, of course, it resurfaced. The only two things that we would ever fight about was my eating disorder and sex. Because with eating disorders as well, whenever you develop your addiction, that's when you are emotionally stunted. 
So I developed my eating disorder when I was 15. And so I hadn't yet totally emotionally matured into my femininity and into my feminine power and all of those things. So my sexuality was very stunted. And I was very close to that for a really long time. And that was the two things that we ever used to fight about was um, my eating disorder and, you know, sex, not having sex a lot. You know, of course, in the beginning you do, but then it goes back to all of these ideas we have around it with culture and shame and whatever. Um, and my desire just wasn't there as much because my only desire really was for the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. You know, that was my compulsion. I was never compelled, compelled towards sex or this and that. I didn't need it for love. Like, you know, some people, they pair sex with love. And I was like, I'm good. I know I'm loved. <laughs> like, I'd rather go do this instead. Um, so he was very supportive of wanting me to recover. It was this big secret though. And one of the things that when I look back on it is I forced him to keep a secret for so long because I was so like, I would hate people if they knew, hate them because then they would watch me and make little comments. Mm, I remember when I was in the hospital, yep. one girl, one, one of my, the girls that was there, her friend came to visit and she was talking about a cookie recipe. And then I remember she leaned over and was like, Oh, I'm sorry. Should I not be talking about this? Oh, and, and I remember thinking, Dude. There's a part of me that's compassionate that wants to be like, I, I hear you. And that's a compassionate question. Thank you for asking. The other part of me wanted to punch her in the face Yes, because I was like, now I'm different. Now I'm different. Mm. Now you identified me as being fucked up in some way. And now there's like taboo topics to talk about around me. So that's why I never wanted. So my eating disorder was a, was a secret. Nobody knew. And because I was an introvert and also isolated a lot, um, I would be around my friends enough so that they would like see me and maybe think I had some certain weird things with food, but nobody ever knew how bad it was at all, ever, ever, ever. So eventually in my marriage, it got to the point where um, it was triggered pretty badly by me being uncomfortable and moving to a different state um, with his job that he sat me down one day on the couch and he had printed out this list of like a hundred ways that I would die if I didn't stop doing this. And this letter about how much he loved me and how he wanted to be with me for the rest of my life and how sad it was making him and how powerless he felt. And he cried and I stared at the side of his ear for the entire conversation. And then finally, when he gave up and went upstairs, I just started sobbing on the couch and just felt like this horrible, terrible human being. And he had, I think he finally asked me if I found you a therapist to go to, would you go see her? And I was like, yeah, but I didn't make any effort. He made all the effort right. to help me. Same as, because yeah. I didn't mm -hmm. think I, I didn't think I could get better at that time. I didn't have any hope. Right. And, and I, but reason that I got better was, or the reason that I went was because this person loved me. And he didn't want to leave me. And I realized that he would if I didn't get better. But also, he was this like happy-go-lucky little like songbird that was pretty comfortable about everything. And he was depressed. I was making him depressed. Mm. He, would, he would come home and he told me later, I didn't know this, but he would come home. He would look at the dish rack to see how many dishes were there. Because he would know how many, how many plates or pots or pans or whatever he'd known how much I'd thrown up that day. And I had no idea that that stuff that he did, but like I was making him do all of these weird little things, to mitigate my pattern. And I wasn't present with him a lot of the time, you know, like 
I would never want to be touched after I ate dinner. Right. You know, it was like, don't touch me. Right. Because I was full, uncomfortable and triggered and doing my best not to throw up. And then a lot of times your partner, because they they love you and they don't know what to do, they'll say little weird things. Like sometimes I had no intention of throwing up and I would go and get, you know, a piece of chocolate. And he would be like, are you still hungry? And I'm like, that's it. Mm-hmm. And it would just trigger a night yep. of being like, yeah. Yep, absolutely. (laughs) So I'm going to go hurt myself and our relationship because you just pissed me off. Yeah. So he was the one that actually um, I started recovery for. And I went to a therapist, I think three sessions into the therapy, she got me into an inpatient facility because I was honest with her and told her I was throwing up like seven or eight times a day at that point. Yeah. And she was like, you need to be inpatient. And I lost my mind. Um, I, I quit both of my jobs, not telling them why, because I was ashamed. You know, I'm not going to tell that. Like, I remember one of my bosses was like, is this something that's communicable? Do I need to be concerned about the other workers? And I was like, no, 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 no. It's nothing like that. But I never told them why, because I was embarrassed. And it was my big, dirty secret. Mm. And I remember the first day ta- I went into the eating disorder facility. And the first day I was there, so awkward, so uncomfortable. Um, they checked me for like self mutilation scars and asked me if I was on any medication, which I would never was. And I remember I said, no. And they were like, you're not on any medication. And I was like, oh my God, I think I'm the only person at the facility that's not on a medicine. That was like my, like, wow. Um, and I remember I sat down on the couch and this girl scooted up next to me and I was like, oh my God, like what? And she was like, are you anorexic or bulimic? And I was like, oh, oh, what? I'd never said this out loud to anyone in my entire life. And I had to fight the urge to just lie to her and be like, what are you talking about? I don't have a problem. <laughs> and then I realized, duh, I'm at an eating disorder facility. And so I remember wanting to lie to her though. I wanted to tell her mm-hmm. I was anorexic because anorexia has this illusion of like, I don't eat. I'm pure. I, you know, la, 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 la. I'm good. I'm this bulimia is like, you know, it's dirty, you know, it's, you you eat all these things and throw it up and it's disgusting. And sometimes not with me, but usually with bulimia, you'll have a lot of other cross addictions. Sometimes it will be um, alcohol, drugs, sex, stealing, you know, there's a lot more comorbidity with stuff with bulimia, whereas anorexia doesn't have as much of that usually just isolate and starve. Um, And I remember wanting to tell her I was anorexic because I felt like it made me look better. But then I was like, I'm bulimic. And she was like, Oh my God, me too. And she like moved closer to me. And I remember thinking, this is really weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I I have written a book that um, my agent recently retired and it wasn't able to be published through her, but I have written a story of my recovery, which um, I'm thinking about either getting another agent for or self publishing, but it starts out at the hospital Mm. because the hospital was this weird summer camp, strange (laughs) alternate reality, you know? And so when I went through that, it didn't, it didn't make me recover. What it did do was it gave me that slight hope that maybe, maybe, maybe I can recover. All you need is that little bit of hope, that tiny little match. That's all you need. Because before I went in, I was like, I don't think I can ever Mm. recover. And then when I left, I was like, maybe, 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 maybe I can, maybe I can. And it was just that flicker. And so, um, of course I went back to my husband and we had these weird little patterns to where I remember one day when I came out, um, I wanted to eat soybeans. Like I was just, I just wanted to have some soybeans and I hid them in my jacket, which I never used to hide food, 
but it was like, I, I wasn't, I hadn't agreed to eat them that night or something. And so he was like, what are you doing? What are you hiding? And it was just like, I just want to eat some fucking soybeans. <laughs> like, just let me eat some soybeans. I'm not going to throw them up. I just want to eat them. But of course you don't trust people when they have addictions because yes. you know, they're liars. Yes. And so we had lots of fights. We moved back to Hawaii and my patterns started coming back. And so that's when he said, I, I would like, would you be open to seeing a therapist again? And I had seen, I think, two or three therapists before I found the one that I loved. And I was with her for a year. One of the most helpful things for me was boundaries that I learned with her. Um, I, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit just because of time, maybe. But um, what people don't tell you is that when you recover, things change. A lot of times people have this illusion that you're going to recover and your family's going to love you and your relationship's going to be even more awesome and all your friendships are going to be gnarly you know, like just great. And I wish that somebody would have prepared me for the disasters that happened after I recovered because people have, or I had this delusion that it was going to be peaches and candy corns and unicorns and rainbows and, you know, all of these like, oh my God, I'm going to be happy and free and everything's going to be great. And it wasn't. Um, I now wanted to explore the world and travel to different places and maybe potentially be with different people. I don't know, you know, because I was having stuff with my sexuality. I was like, I don't know. And of course my husband didn't, he wanted me and a safe little nest in our little home. And that was really hard for me. And because he was also paired with a lot of my addiction, I was really terrified that he was going to be too familiar and I was going to just reenact all of those patterns and I was going to die. And now that I had this sense of freedom without my eating disorder a little bit, and I was starting to get, I was really, really scared that if I stayed with him and in the relationship and didn't explore all of these things, I would go back to my eating disorder and I would die really unhappy and be depressed for the rest of my life. So my marriage sort of fell apart. Then my parents were super angry at me. Mm -hmm. They just like blamed me everything because my husband was absolutely wonderful Mm -hmm. and adored me and super kind and loving and waited and was faithful and all of these things. Um, I couldn't decide. And so he kicked me out. We were unlegally separated for six months. We ended up getting back together after six months, Mm -hmm. um, which was wonderful. But we also didn't go to therapy then. We never really talked about that disconnection that happened. And I wish we would have because we were together for another five years but um, we started growing in different directions. The sexuality part for me, which I think a lot of eating disordered people have, I didn't work on it. I knew that I should have. I hate the word should, but I knew that I should have. But I remember being like, I just worked on myself for years and years and years and years. I'm fucking exhausted. I don't want to do any more work. And so I didn't work on that part. And there was also another level of disconnection that my husband and I didn't have you know, or a level of connection we didn't have, which was like the sexual aspect. And we laughed a lot, you know, we were warm with each other, but there were things that were starting to be different in our lives. And so we started drifting apart. And um, what eventually happened was, I think we drifted apart enough, we're looking back, we didn't have really any common friends in common. We didn't have a community, we didn't have a tribe that we had support from when things were happening. We were just these isolated units. Um, we didn't resolve conflict very well. Um, it would sort of be swept under the rug in a similar way that my childhood was. And I'm sure in a similar way that his childhood was. And so, um, he eventually became interested in someone else and didn't tell me for a little while and didn't want to reconcile the marriage. 
And I absolutely did want to reconcile the marriage because for both me and him, marriage was forever. You know, we were committed to it being forever and you just work that shit out. I mean, unless of course there's abuse or something crazy happening, I totally advocate people not being together, but marriage to me and how I was raised was it is a, it is a lifelong commitment. And so I did, um, this is a lot where my spirituality and God came in is I prayed every single day. I set up a room in my closet and I prayed for our marriage for an hour every day. Sometimes I could, sometimes I remember crawling into the closet and just sobbing for an hour and my marriage wasn't reconciled. God said no. And the process of doing that though, um, I have so much love and gratitude for him looking back that there was, um, I didn't spin a lot and, oh my God, this other woman is, you know, it was more of like, I was really focused on God and really focused on being in love. Um, that I think that that protected me a lot in a sense. And even now when I look back, like I have a lot of peace when I think about him, he was an amazing, amazing man for me for about 11 years or, you know, 11 and a half years. And the ending was terrible. I have never, I mean, when people said that they experienced heartbreak, you know, I'd never, yeah, I was like, oh yeah, it must be terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I would open up my refrigerator and I couldn't even fathom the thought of taking out a piece of bread, unwrapping the twisty tie, putting it, I would just close my refrigerator and lie on the floor and sob. Like I would, I walked around like a zombie for months, um, existential crisis. How can I live on my own? Just, you know, I'm losing the person that was like, and a lot of these things, you know, like, I don't think that sometimes we don't understand how important other people are to us. I don't think that really, maybe he did, I don't know. But I think that if he really knew how important he was to me and how much I did value him, that maybe I didn't necessarily show all the time. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. And so um, one of those things that was interesting, though, about that time in connection to my eating disorder is I was wondering, is this going to come back? Because this was such a traumatic thing for me that I was actually terrified that my eating disorder might return, even though I felt really good and stable. And it was a profound experience for me to realize, no, I'm better. Like, I'm recovered. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't didn't go towards any of those things. Like, I have... I can sit with terrible, horrible, gut-wrenching oh, emotions that just gutted me mm. and I can be okay and God is there and I am held. And that that to me was, I was, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I, I've done my work on recovery and I have set my heart in a place of love and I have set my heart with God to trust that whatever God has is what is supposed to be for my life. And it has changed me. Of course, you know, after you recover, you're different. After my divorce, I'm different. And the, the fact that I, I was recovered for a little bit, it enhanced my recovery, I think, because I now had to really, really, really sit and use every single coping tool that I ever had. And it was one of the most wonderful, horrifying things to happen to me. But it was really wonderful in that sense of there's an idea that I used to have about permanency. And I think that there's that idea in addiction that things are permanent, things are static, they will never change. And I think that I used to really believe that things are permanent and people will be in your life forever. And I don't necessarily like that I don't believe that anymore, 
But I think that there is a reality to the fact that if you're just really present with somebody, you never know what's going to happen. You really don't. You never know what's going to happen tomorrow or five years from now. And all you have is the present moment. And I was raised Christian. When I pray, I pray to God and Jesus. And I also believe in energy and all these other kinds of different things. But there is this element that really helps me of thinking that maybe we chose this before we came here. You know, that our connection and the way that we disconnected was set up specifically for my growth as a human. And that there's all of these lessons that were profoundly important for me to learn along the way. And because of that, it helps me to keep my heart in this like beautiful sense of love and appreciation for the profound man that he was for me at that time. And I will forever love that person that he was for me then. Just like when I look back at myself now, I can have a lot of compassion for myself when Mm -hmm. I was in my addiction. The second part to that is that I have experienced being, I've experienced, you know, opening my heart to somebody else that I realized had a form of addiction and being on the other side of it. Mm. And that was an experience that I, even when I recovered and we were together for five more years, I never really had. And so being on the other side of the addiction, I'm like, oh my God, addiction makes your partner feel invisible. It makes yes. them feel fucking invisible. Yes. And it's because you're so self-absorbed in yes. it that there's no space for the other person. And so I remember driving home one night, I chose to drive home and um, sobbing in the car and actually out loud um, sort of apologizing to my ex-husband. You know, I didn't call him on the phone. It was just something I did energetically and just apologizing and being like, I'm so profoundly sorry. I now deeply, deeply feel what it feels like to be on the other side of the addiction and like just to feel invisible and to feel powerless and to feel like you love this human and you can't do anything. And that was such a profound gift that I was able to get to be on both sides of it. Even if it was just for, you know, that little bit. Wow. 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 What an interview guys. Jeez. <laughs> I'm going to, at the beginning, I love at the, experience. <laughs> at the, you know what? This is one of those ones. Cause I always have like a small intro before the episode. Right. And this is yeah. one of those ones where I'm going to say, have your tissues out, buckle up, because this is going to be a roller coaster ride. <laughs> it's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> Keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. <laughs> yeah. Because this and, is... Um, Go ahead. You, you had t- talked about higher power earlier. Um, and I just want to say something about that. Like, my higher power is God. I still refer to him as he, um, even though I believe that male, female, everything, it's all energy but that's the terminology that I use. Um, and I remember when my, when, um, my husband had said that he didn't want to be married to me anymore. I had left, gone downstairs, thought about slitting my wrists in the bathroom, you know, and having him find me because once again, fuck yes, you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'll show him. You know, totally. You know? Yeah. I'll show him. He'll yeah. feel guilty for the rest of his life. Exactly. I, you know, yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I remember, um, God giving me this visual of a palm and me being like a little fairy in it. So actually, hold on. This is a beautiful, beautiful artist from the big Island, but um, this is not it. But that image of being cradled in somebody's palm 
Robin Chance is the artist's name. I just want to give credit to her. She's a beautiful artist that lives on the big island of Hawaii. Um, And he had given me this vision of me being just little curled up in the palm of his hand and the words palm of my hand. And so I remember thinking like, whatever happens, God's got me. Like whatever happens, I'm held. Like I'm held. And that was even looking back on my eating disorder, I had a huge angry period with God, huge angry period to where I went away from Christianity for a period of time. And when I came back, I had adopted more of the new age. God is love. And I realized that two things were really important for me. When I was younger, I was very depressed and I didn't actually have a plan to kill myself. I just wanted to not exist. And Christianity kept me here on this earth because I believed at that time that you went to hell if you killed yourself. And then when I transitioned into new age stuff um, and believed in reincarnation, which I I, I don't really know what happens. Nobody really knows. But if there is reincarnation, I was like, oh my God, if this exists and I don't close this circle, I'm just going to come back Mm. and I'm going to have to do this again and again and again and again. And that was terrifying to me, so terrifying that it brought me into action. And so I was like, I need to fix this now. And so then when I came back to Christianity with, you know, my, my little flavors of it, um, I realized that those two things were profound for me because I really believed that God was always deeply disappointed in me. Mm. And then I hated God for not being there for me. I had so much Mm. anger with God. And so one of the things that I think is really powerful that I like to share with people, especially because of that, you know, connection to God or spirit or whatever you want to call it, the divine, the universe is that God can handle your anger. God doesn't want you to hide parts of yourself. Like we do in addiction, God can handle your anger. Like I remember, (laughs) I remember sometimes being like, what the fuck God, (laughs) Like, and God can handle anything that you throw at him because it's all okay. And God will hold you and really has held you this entire time, even when you don't realize it. Like when I look back, I can see his fingerprints on so many things when I really thought that I was abandoned by him. And I look back and I'm like, oh no, that person that hooked me up with this person or, you know, my husband finding the one therapist that was a Christian that got me back and that got me into that eating disorder facility and then blah, 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 blah. And Everything is orchestrated in hindsight. And I believe that if we continuously, um, there's these prayers, Tosha Silver is an author and she has these prayers called please God, please prayers, or maybe I call them please (laughs) prayers, but I like them because they start off with please God, please. (laughs) And so um, one of the ones is, you know, like if you don't believe that you can recover, you know, if you believe that you're broken, it's like, it's not like please, God, please, you know, whatever it's please, God, please help me to be a person that believes I'm whole. It's not saying, you know, like, please, God, please help me to be somebody that believes I can recover. Cause a lot of it is even in forgiveness, there's some people that have had horrific things done to them. And in my facility, there's people that have straight out been like, fuck that person. I'm never forgiving them. You know, they, they raped me and I was four. And I was just like, I get that. I get that. You can, you know, it's your choice. And so what I offer them a lot um, is, you know, if you want to, um, you can use those. Please, God, please help me to be a person that can forgive. Because we as a human, we can't do all that stuff on our own. 
recovery was not on my own, even though I'm like, oh yeah, I recovered. It's always a choice. There's so many things that are orchestrated in recovery and God is orchestrated in recovery as well. And that connection is so vitally important. So that please, God, please make me into someone just kind of, it ex- it creates space. Like we're talking about that breath. Mm-hmm. It creates that space for something different to exist that is not in our control that we can't do on our own. Like there's no way when I think about it that I could have recovered on my own. You know, that was my fair, like many, many people, human people, but definitely God as well, hands down. Holy moly, guacamole. Like, (laughs) I don't know what else to say other than (laughs) it's like when you, when you think about this incredible journey that, that you've been on and that we've all been on, a lot of what, you know, I wrote down here, um, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And so what you mentioned there mm-hmm. is this whole idea <clears throat> of, I come from a very Christian uh, religious upbringing. My, my mother's a Jehovah's Witness. So I come from that very okay. strict, punishing, guilting whole philosophy. Yes. Oh, and yes. You're terrible. You're, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're sinning. You're shameful. You're bad. God doesn't love you. <laughs> it's the whole, just the whole gamut of guilt, shame um, that ultimately brings out this anger and rage. <clears throat> That's what it brought out mm-hmm. in me is that, that anger and rage. Yeah. But the whole idea that we're just, that you choose, right? There is that philosophy too that you chose to experience something. As a human being, <clears throat> you yeah. are this spiritual creature yeah. and you made a choice. I think I want to experience some of that down there. Yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever that yeah. is. Let me, let me go through this. For me, it was drug addiction. For you, it was an eating disorder, right? And that whole transition that we go through, it's not just us. It's your husband. Mm-hmm. It's your mother. It's your oh, father. It's, like ugh. Once you look at it, because for me, in many situations, when we're so far down the rabbit hole, we have a hard time looking at the collateral damage. And then along the, so- along the collateral yeah. damage is the learning that all the people that are surrounded or are connected to us collaterally, that's part of their experience, it's part of their journey. So a lot mm-hmm. of the why me or why is this happening or why didn't I learn sooner or why didn't... It's because there is that inherent voice inside of us that is guiding us throughout this journey. And if it mm-hmm. was meant to work out, the marriage would have worked out. I mean, I'm listening to you talk about your husband. The man's a saint. You know what I mean? But at the same time... Right. He was really stellar. Yes. And at the end, he really sucked. <laughs> but he was an incredible human being and still is, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. and the, But, you know, as and, but as you're going through this journey, too, it was like, I'm thinking, too, it's like... When is it time for him to recover? Because for him yeah. to go through that marriage and to enable and to be codependent and to be part of it and to just like latch onto it and fight and fight and fight and fight and I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes to save this marriage, right? And ultimately, once you got into recovery, you went even in a different direction. So you got married and then the disease took you in one direction. Then you recovered, you went in another direction. And so it's mm-hmm. like, like if I was coaching your husband, I'm like, well, how long is it going to take for you to like, I mean, how long are you going to deal with this? Like, how long are you going to, how are you going to do it? Because you might be, you, you might be preventing 
her from learning the experience she needs to experience, and, you, and she might be preventing you from learning what you need to learn as long as you guys stay together. Maybe you guys need mm-hmm. to separate, right? So there's all these questions. Mm-hmm. There's all, I mean, oh, totally. you can go in a totally. million different directions. So if, yeah, yeah. When, when, when after this whole story, because again, once we own this experience, guess what we get to do? We get to guide people and help them through this. And mm-hmm. so, so at the end of your journey, a little light. yep, like at the end of your journey, in retrospect now, what was the learning? Like, what was the learning of that whole experience with your, with your marriage that you would, yeah. uh, when somebody else is going through it, you can, you can say, okay, here's what happened to me. And this is what I would suggest. Or would you? Yeah. Yes, I would. Um, I'm going to talk about the connection first, because I think connection shows up in relationship and disorder. Um, I learned how to stay a lot of addiction. The addict in the relationship is the avoidance addict. Mm -hmm. And usually they'll attract the love addict and the love addict uses the other person as their higher power. Mm -hmm. I don't think totally that was my husband, but I definitely know it's one of my very good friends in her relationship. And she attracted an addict and there it's this dance you do this like fire dance and i know that i was an avoidance addict i was loving kind like i showed up in all these wonderful beautiful ways and i was reliable and consistent but i also had this like dark side where i would check out with my eating disorder and so one of the things that i remember one of my friends saying when we separated previously is she told me she's like i think you have a lot of experience running i think in this lifetime you might be learning how to stay. Mm. And when she said that to me, it was really profound because I do, I would, um, you know, have a fight with a friend or whatever, not like something about them and just be like, done. Like <laughs> I would be like, sip, sip, sip. <laughs> and so, and that's why I isolated a lot, you know, like, because I have a lot of close friendships because it was hard for me to maintain those. And so I learned in this marriage, like learning how to stay because I came back to the marriage. And when I came back to it, I was committed to the marriage. Might not have been in like, you know, we still don't have certain skill sets and relationship skills and whatever that lots of people don't have. But I stayed. And then the experience of having him leave me was just like, but I learned how to stay. Like, (laughs) I learned how to stay and you left. Like, what the fuck? How is that fair? I finally learned how to do this. And like, you left. And part of that is all the experience though. Like I know what it's like to be in a deeply committed relationship to where you see your future with somebody. And I also know that sometimes things don't last and they can still be beautiful and you can still appreciate things. And what I would say to anybody is that your addiction is not going to get better and it's not going to go away unless you do something about it. If you want things in your life to change, you have to change the things in your life. And if you want real, authentic connection with another human being, which is what we all deeply desire, to be loved and seen and really understood for who we are, the addiction will only get in the way of that. You can never get the things that you truly desire that will fill your soul with joy having an addiction because it stands like a person in the doorway every single time. And I wish that I could go back and talk to my 15-year-old self and be like, don't do this. (laughs) Or talk to the therapist your parents sent you to when you were 15. 
stop being an asshole <laughs> and thinking that this is your secret little thing and you're special and precious somehow. You're not different. You just became a statistic of millions of other people. You're not special. You're not, you're not unique. You just became like everybody else. And I was trying to make myself superhuman. And I ended up destroying a lot of things that were really important to me and hindering my relationship with myself and with the people around me that really deeply loved me. Um, another thing is that I would, I would recommend all the time. I didn't do this. My, my recovery was more individual, but I would absolutely recommend family therapy, especially if you have a teen or somebody that's younger, even if you're older, because disorders don't just develop in a vacuum. There's reasons that they happened. And if your kid is in it, you're in it with them. Mm -hmm. It's not just, Oh, I have no idea where this happens from. Like my, my kid just developed this weird thing. There's something happening in the family dynamic. Even if your household is loving and wonderful, like I had a lot of love. My love was never in question. My parents spent a stupendous amount of time with me. You know, they are, are amazing. And I still had an eating disorder for 11 and a half years. I can't even imagine the people that were molested, abused, raped, you know, beaten, grew up in gang families, you know, all of this other stuff. Everyone has their story. But the common denominators are that we all experience these emotions that we want to hide and run from. And some of us get really good at hiding and running from them. And sometimes we don't make it out. Yes, yes. No, sometimes. Make it out. <laughs> make it out. Well, you, it's you, worth it. You, you don't make it out, right? And like, and that's the scary part of like the reincarnation aspect that you talk about too, which is... Yeah. Oh my God. Am I doomed to, to repeat this? <laughs> right? Am I doomed to repeat yeah. this at some yeah. point? Because I didn't learn what I needed to learn here, right? And I know this. Yeah. I know that when 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 I, when my disease finally ended my marriage, right? When I finally got mm -hmm. to the end and she finally said, That's it. After years of fighting for us and 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 thinking that when we got married, I would change, thinking that when she got pregnant, that I would change, thinking if I went to a therapist, I would change, thinking if she did everything she possibly could, right? And and there was yeah. just yeah. neither one of us knowing what we were up against, but the, the disease yeah. just looking down on us and laughing until she finally left, and then I started to fight. That's when I, yeah. that's when I put up the fight and I said, I got to get her back. That's your avoidance addict, love addict, avoidance addict. She left, then you run and chase her. Right. And I know this, and we both know this. We both know this. Yeah. That if, if, I, if she would have taken me back, then I wouldn't have changed. It was the fight yeah. in me, and it was her being at the distance that allowed me to become the man that I am today. And now, breaking away from that old person breaking away or or doing what I needed to do, right? Overcoming what I needed to overcome. Now I'm married four years. We just celebrated four years in March, right? Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. And an effortless marriage. We've known each other. This April will be five years that we've known each other. I don't know if I believe that, but no. <laughs> it, and you guess, resolve conflict well. Guess, guess you what? You learned how to resolve conflict. Yes, yes. But the thing yeah, is... It's not effortless, but... It's, it's, it's no, 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 nothing, nothing's effort. You're right. You're, you're actually, you're hundred percent right. You make it look effortless. I make you it. You learned I do. skill sets with your partner. Yes. You make it look effortless. Yes. Yeah. 
There is there is compromise. There's communication. There is you know love. There is you know quality time. There is all these things that yeah. you learn along the way that they that this other person yeah. used to bitch about, and you're like, ooh, <laughs> I I should probably not do this. Like it's it's A B C right, but it takes yeah, it takes yeah. what it takes right. And, yeah. and what if what if you don't leave? But there's still that hovering past that stays over you, and there's always that that cringing feeling that what if it comes back? What if it comes back? Yeah. You know what I mean? So we could we you could go in a million different directions in this conversation because I know there's people that have fought for their relationship that have just like mm-hmm. I'm going I'm going to succeed or die. Like this has been a conversation I've had with some of my guests. I'm like. Did you ever think that maybe you should have bailed or maybe that he should have bailed? They're like, I was not going to give up. They said, I was not going to give up. I was wrong. I was going to, I was succeed or die. Why? What comes up for me when you say that is because then it's just another failure Mm. added to the list of my already failure of myself and my addiction and my disorder. Why don't you just take everything away from me and then I'll just be a complete failure. Because there, there still is the stigma that if you have a divorce, you've failed somehow. Yes. And, you know, they don't, you know, it's like, I mean, I tell people that I'm divorced. and I'm sure people think all kinds of weird, different things. What I don't if they share don't? my story with everyone or the details. <laughs> and, so, and, and sometimes they might not. But, you know, there, there, there still is that like, oh, like you're divorced. Like, why? What did you do? And like, how did you not show up in the marriage that it didn't work? And yes, everyone has their part. Like I definitely had my part. I was an asshole in many arenas and I was wonderful in many arenas. And I didn't have a choice about it ending. But when I look back on it, sometimes you're right. Like things need to end because the timing is or people are moving in different directions. Or sometimes if you do stay with your partner through recovery, you become a different person. And you no longer connect in Correct. the ways that are really important. Correct. Or yes. you recover and your partner doesn't want to do any work on Correct. themselves because you were the addict. Yes. I don't need to do any work. You're, you're the one that messed up. Yeah. And that doesn't work. Like I want to have, I think we all want to have conscious, loving partnerships. And it takes two people. Like relationships aren't easy. We do most of our growth in relationship, which means that they're not always fun and sunshiny all the time. But you get good at doing these things when you're with somebody that's willing to do the stuff with you. And that's the part that's really fun. Yes. You know, like if you have a partner that's great and wonderful, you have like amazing sex and you laugh a lot and you learn how to resolve conflict and you learn how to do all of these cool things and set boundaries and talk about your feelings. Like who doesn't want to be in that relationship? I feel safe. I feel like if something came up, I know that they're going to be there. Whereas some partnerships, it's like, you never know. Like if some, if shit hits the fan, your partner could bail. Like that's scary to never feel safe and stable in a relationship. And what I'm looking for now is different than, you know, my relationship before it had many, many wonderful things, but I've grown and changed in very different ways that what I'm looking for now is different than the partnership I had before. That's true. Well, what I learned, and this is the thing that, that this is the coaching aspect that I come from. Everything that I learned. Okay. Everything that I learned, the man that I am today, as far as being a husband, I learned in the fight. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the fight in the marriage. I'm talking about the fight outside the marriage. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. going to change in the marriage. 
But the fight, the fight that I gave during when I was trying to get her back and she had enough foresight to realize that I didn't even know what I was fighting for. She had enough, she had enough foresight to see. She knew if I let him back, he's going to stop fighting. She knew it. Right. And I learned everything I needed to learn in the fight. And then one day, three years later, (laughs) three years, three years later, three years later, when she got remarried and had another child, right. That I was like, Okay, use everything that you learn now, right, to do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Because now you know what. Yeah. Now you know what to do and you know what not to do, but you never would have learned it in the marriage. You had to learn it in the fight. And that's just, and that's, and so that's where I have to, that's where I come from. Everyone's going to coach differently, right? But that's where I have to come from. I always, I go, I can only come from what I know. So here is my experience. Take from it what you will. But I know this for myself, and so you have to ask yourself that tough question as well, right? Is, is what you're doing yeah. right now, especially when it's the woman that I'm talking to, right? Because yeah. if he ain't doing shit, right, and you're making all the changes, then you're preventing yeah. him from being the best version of himself because he might be needing that fight. He might be needing that fight. So yeah. One thing that I want to say, uh, the, the, the last thing here is um, I, I realized the importance of holding people that we love at the highest vibration of their highest self. Because if we consider them, you know, addicts, alcoholics, they're fucked up, they never show up, they're not consistent. And those things might be true to a certain extent. But if we can create our own boundaries and safe space and still holding them as this whole wonderful human that is loving and kind and can be stable and can be wonderful. And if we are seeing them in that vibration, they can have the opportunity to rise and meet that. And it means that we can still set healthy boundaries for ourselves. We don't have to be in relationship with them, but holding them in that vibration is so important because everyone's on their own journey of healing. Yes. And this happens to be their particular journey with addiction, but we are all, like there's that part of our soul that, you know, can't be damaged. Like we, we are whole somewhere in there. And so we're not broken. We're not effed up. Like this is just part of our journey and our yeah, experience. Totally. But he adds that their highest self. I love it. I love it. Well, this is, uh, officially the longest interview, uh, <laughs> that I have, I have, I have done. And the, the other interview that I did that was this long, had the, I think still today has the largest number of downloads. And then we had, we had one of these conversations. (laughs) We had one of these conversations where it was, where we just, we, we pivoted all over the place because it was just so intense. It was just so intense. I've thoroughly enjoyed every bit of every second. (laughs) It rocked my world. Yeah. (laughs) It rocked my day. It was the best part of my day. Hands down. This, 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 this is, I'm going to, I'm going to throw, I always throw this out there when they're long. I go, this, this is venturing into Rich Roll land, right? Where, where Rich Roll has these three hour interviews. His interviews are like three hours long along with, yeah, Joe Rogan does too, but Joe Rogan's kind of a beast. You know what I mean? Uh, A huge, big Joe Rogan fan, but I definitely don't copy his, his interview style. Um, So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to start closing down even though we could do this for three hours 
Um, but what I want to do is I want to close up for the newcomers that are listening right now um, because this is Great. one of their favorite parts of the of the interview process. So number one, okay. what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean, and in this particular case, recovering, um, when you were first introduced to the idea or the concept of recovery? What was preventing you? The fact that I was a terrible person and I couldn't maintain it. So why even try? I'd failed enough already. I failed every single time I tried and I didn't want to be a failure again and again and again. So just fuck it. I might as well just do what I'm doing and see how long I live. It's scary to think that you can be different and then to not be able to deliver. It just makes you feel worse about yourself. I am not worthy. So why even try? I'm going to mm-hmm. fail anyway. Yep. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I always do. I always have. Why is this going to be different? This is the powerful message. Powerful message. Because there's so many people out there that have not recovered simply because of that feeling. That why even go yeah. through it? What? What? Why? And the thing is, it doesn't matter. I say it takes as long as it takes to heal. Mm -hmm. I know somebody that's a counselor at my facility that went into treatment 15 times Mm -hmm. and he's been clean for years and years and years and years. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Go as slow as you need, as fast as you need. Just go take one step. Just keep going. It doesn't matter. Just keep going. You'll get there if you really want it. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So go. you don't have to know how. Yes. Uh, yeah. You don't have to know how there's, there's this analogy I use of me as a little girl holding an ice cream cone, a pink ice cream cone, pink bubblegum ice cream across six lanes of highway. And I, I know that if I step into the lanes, I'm going to get mulled over by traffic. All I need to know is that at some point I want to be on that other side with that little girl eating that bubblegum ice cream. I don't have to know how I'm going to get there. I just know that's where I want to be. Beautiful. You don't need to know the how, just know that that's where you want to be. <laughs> I love it. Now, now, did you want to use the bubblegum ice cream analogy? Um, yeah. Yeah, I've written about that. It's my, that was my childhood thing, bu- pink bubblegum ice cream. Are you teasing me now? I couldn't help myself because it was like, it's a food thing. It's an eating disorder. Oh, and it's well, yeah, sugar. Totally. Well, yeah, of course. And you know what I mean? Like, well, Yeah, I know it is. But it's also comfort and happiness, pink bubblegum ice cream. Oh, Okay. <laughs> like, Wrap it up. No. <laughs> All right. So, so, um, okay. What, okay. So, number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Without being honest, you can't recover. Honesty is the key. Honesty is the key. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't Brutal ask you. Brutal honesty for yourself and others. I didn't ask you the second one. At what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? In the hospital, um, when I was an inpatient, um, I had this moment with my therapist with, she kept asking about my family and I kept being like, stop trying to ask me about my fucking family. Like it doesn't have anything to do with my family. And I remember this moment of, I don't remember exactly what she said, to be honest, But me being like, oh, my God, it's about more than just me being stupid. It has to do with how I was raised. And there's all these other layers that I never, ever explored because it wasn't on the menu. And suddenly it became on the menu. And it started with her asking me about my childhood. 
And I was like, I had a great childhood. Stop talking about my fucking childhood, you know? <laughs> but I remember that was that that was it now was on the menu. Oh, there's all these other things to explore because I've explored all these other things and I still can't recover. So that means I haven't gotten to what it is yet. And that moment of hope. <gasps> oh my God. Other caves to explore. Maybe the answer's <laughs> in there. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I love it. All right. So final question. If you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it okay. be? That's a great question. Um, love yourself fiercely. Mm. And pray. Even if you don't believe in God, pray. Space will open up. You will find something. That is spectacular. That is how we're going to close, ladies and gentlemen. That was beautiful. Wow. Z, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my God. Thank you. Oh, this is so fun. Thank you. This thank was you, everyone watching. I appreciate it. Amazing. Um, can, I, can, I, can I put in my podcast real quick? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Z, um, please tell <laughs> us how our listeners can get in touch with you. <laughs> The podcast, the website, everything. How how they can how yes. can they re- how can they reach out? Sorry. So my actual site is zizocalante.com. It's my name.com. Um, I have a podcast called Throwing Up Rainbows about eating disorders and other addictions. You can find it on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on SoundCloud. It's Throwing Up Rainbows. And we're in our first season right now and branching out to our second pretty soon. Um, we also have a site, uh, throwinguprainbows.com. I think it's HTTP, throwinguprainbows.com. Um, and then I also do coaching for people that are interested in specific coaching with me. And you can find that on my contact page or my coaching page on my actual site at zizocalante.com. Beautiful. I promise I will have all this listed on Z's show notes. So after this interview, go to the Share Podcast, go to her show notes. I will have all this information listed, you can just click on it and go. Perfect. Awesome. Yay. All right. So we now have reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.